Shit! Shit. What are you doing up, little miss? Shit. No, we don't say that, at least not before we issue our warning that binge mode contains adult content and spoilers. Why are you up? Because I got some important shit going on here. And now, binge mode Marvel. This time travel thing that we're going to try and pull off tomorrow, it's, it's, it's got me scratching my head about the survivability of it all. That's the thing. And again, that's the hero gig. Part of the journey is the end. What am I even tripping for? Everything's going to work out exactly the way it's supposed to. I love you 3,000. Welcome back to Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! Great website. It's the best. Joining me today, now that he's finished deducing whether baby him or old him peed his pants, it's your favorite quantum realm explorer, Jason Concepcion. Mel, I see this as an absolute win. (laughs) What? Much like binge mode Marvel. <laughs> do, do the whole thing as Professor Hulk. Call me Angry Girl the whole time. Angry Girl. <laughs> blinker, Blinker, Blinker and Sullivan. <laughs> oh, God. Much like binge mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as Phase 4 Dawns. Do you think Professor Hulk and Nat played Hide the Zucchini? I mean, it's as Tony would say, I don't think you're hiding. I don't think you're hiding that one. Please make the journey back to Vormir with us. Uh, by following this <laughs> podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcast. And please write and review us. Give us the five star ratings or you won't get to come to the garden with us. It looks nice there. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Binge Mode, Harry Potter, Binge Mode, Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free, exclusively on Spotify. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to pay your respects to our dearly departed Avengers. And don't forget to head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. You'll fit right in if you're traveling to New Jersey in the 70s. Enough said. Last time I binge with Marvel, we popped on our time suits for part one of our Avengers Endgame discussion. Today we're diving deep. 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 Like really deep. Deep. Really deep. <laughs> Into part two. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from this film, all deep. three phases of the MCU to date. <laughs> Gets me every time. Still makes me laugh. And the wider Marvel canon. Mm. As that wide as the zucchini, they can't hide, Jay. That, w- that wide banner <laughs> canon. I see this as an absolute win, Nat. <laughs> 
So say hello and thank you to your local rat because it's time to head to Avengers HQ right after this. Time travel. What? Jason? Steve? Isaac? Graham? Be careful. Look out for each other. This is the pot of our lives and we're going to win whatever it takes. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is sacrifice. Let's start with Tony. Tony is not the first person we see in Endgame, but after opening on the Barton farm and witnessing the hell of Clint's family vanishing, the tone setting reminder of the unrelenting loss and grief that Thanos and his pursuit of balance and gratitude unleashed into the universe. We get one of the best needle drops in the MCU. Traffic's Dear Mr. Fantasy playing over the opening Marvel logo, porting us into our first scene with Tony and still remember the chills this gave me the first time I saw it and heard it in the theater. The clips that flash inside of the Marvel Studios wordmark are of the original six Avengers, Tony, Cap, Thor, Hulk, Nat, Clint, and others who survived the snap. No one who's gone. And the first lyrics that we hear speak to what Tony Stark and the first decade of the MCU have given us. And when the sound shifts to diegetic in the scene and we see Tony and Nebula playing paper football and register the whisper of the track in the background, Peter Zoon, we have to assume, it's harder to hear the next set of lyrics, but it's worth thinking about what they are. You are the one who can make us all laugh, but doing that, you break out in tears. Please don't be sad. If it was a straight mind you had, we wouldn't have known you all these years. And... There's such fitting harmony here for Tony, for the MCU, of cheer and despair, wonder and woe. It is the Tony Stark experience in miniature, a reminder of how much he's overcome and how much he gave to us while doing so. Comic books, superheroes, the very essence of what the MCU and Marvel give to people. The ability to find joy and purpose and possibility in the fantastic, to unlock something about your own experience through the glow of the Bifrost Bridge or the glinting blue of Erskine's serum or the surge of Tony's repulsor beams. Tony has been our Mr. Fantasy, the one who way back in 2008 began to hammer away at the suit that launched the MCU and the legacy of storytelling adorned in arc reactors and titanium faceplates and thin goatees and knowing sarcastic smirks. It's why there was no more fitting stinger for this film, no better way to honor Tony, really, than to simply hear that sound, that hammering, that conviction and determination, the futurist instinct to always find a way to save the day. (laughs) The futurist is here. (laughs) He sees all. He knows what's best for you. Gets me every time. (laughs) To, as the lyrics go, make us all happy. Take us out of this gloom. Tony had to fight his way through his own gloom so often along the way. The genius billionaire playboy philanthropist ethos. 
that defines so much of his early years is ingrained in Tony's spirit, but was never the totality of who he was or who he wanted to be for all of Tony's arrogance and his bravado. His arc has been heavily defined by doubt and fear as much as as certitude. I think that's part of what makes him so human is like his drive to make better things is is generated by that doubt and fear from Iron Man 3 to Age of Ultron to Civil War. His desire to protect the people he loves has always been inextricable from the way he fears being unable to do exactly that. It's always been his most fascinating contradiction. And thus the thing that makes him so very relatable. He's a hero, but he's also a human defined by the same uncertainty and yearning that we all are. As we discussed in our part one Endgame pod, one of the true miracles of the movie is how Holy built it is for viewers who watch Tony and all the characters undergo their journeys, move toward their own sense of enlightenment and apotheosis. When we cut to Nebula playing paper football 22 days after Thanos snapped and everyone else on Titan disappeared, we don't have to think. We've internalized every step of Tony's journey. That scene answers so many questions about the things that have been happening since the very end of the last movie. In some ways, there are a few stranger pairings than Tony and Nebula, but that's part of the delightful surprise of it. Nebula always feeling like the outsider, the one who had to prove it, had to fight too hard to try to earn it. Tony, like the one who inherited something he wasn't sure he wanted or really deserved, but through his growth, tried to find new ways to share what he had and what he could do with other people. The thing that I really love about this pairing in this scene is it's one that lets Tony not be the fucking hard driving mm-hmm. type A person. He gets Blue to meaning. like <laughs> he get yeah, he gets to like shift into neutral and be the one who's like, hey, let's just have fun. Why don't you just relax totally. and have fun? Totally. When he is always that character that just cannot let go. And Nebula in some ways represents the very dread that hung over Tony for so long, connected as she is to Thanos and the doom that Tony dreamed about, had seen in his visions, but that's not who Nebula is now. And they can actually give quite a lot to each other and recognize quite a bit in each other. The longing for paternal love and acceptance, the unceasing need to see their mission through. It's a very, very interesting pairing. Nebula, so much Nebula. (laughs) Karen Gillan, she does this one uh, thing in this movie. So when she is uh, first mentioning that Thanos and herself are in, are, in 2014, also looking for the stones. And they flash to that battle scene. And then Gamora saves her life. She does like this, uh, this. Oh, yeah. Like, body. I can't believe you're the one who saved me I again. Can't, like yeah. her. Can't believe I have to be grateful to you. It's so annoyed and frustrated. And also like the way her legs splay out. It's like, <laughs> it's like a doll or something. She's so yeah. mad about it. And it's just like a wonderful <laughs> moment that I, I think she's doing a great job in this movie. On the Benatar, the message that Tony records for Pepper is so heart-wrenching. Yeah. It's a showcase. It really is good. For how their love has enhanced Tony's life, fueled so much of his maturation. And of course, it's mutual, but really, Pepper helped him a lot. Yes. <laughs> he is recording it fittingly on his Iron Man helmet and, and one that is warped by battle with Thanos symbolizing the war not only with the Mad Titan, but the war that Tony has always waged with himself. Remember what Pepper heard from Tony right before 
Ebony Maw, and everyone went to space. We should have no more surprises, Tony said, ever. I should promise you. And <laughs> he meant that. He meant that he wanted sure. to be able to make and keep that promise. If he, me- if he meant it, he wouldn't be out wearing a suit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you know, wearing a nano, wearing should a set be, of nano armor. <laughs> well, there should be shirts in the closet. No yeah. monsters, but you got to be prepared. Just as he wanted to mean it when he blew up all of his suits at the end of Iron Man 3, but he also wanted to fight to make the world safer for her, for their family, for other families. And as he told Cap in Civil War, there's always been some other reason to fight. Something that put that promise on hold. Quote, and then, and then, and then, I never stop because the truth is, I don't want to stop. As he reaches out to the helmet to record his words to Pepper here, foreshadowing the actual final farewell that he'll leave for Pepper and Morgan and Happy and all of his fellow Avengers five years later at his funeral, he reaches out with arms thinned by the days spent in space working to try to make his way back home. Space, his first view of which in the Avengers altered his understanding of the threat that they were facing, of his mission, of what he had to try to do to find so much of his arc to calm. And remember what Cap said to him then. Stark, you know that's a one-way trip. In essence, the same thing that Tony said to Peter when he found him on Ma's ship in Infinity War. The sacrifice play. The one that in the contentious early days of their Avengers formation, Cap didn't think Tony would make. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you, Cap said. And he saw at the end of that movie, The Avengers, that that was not true. And Tony has proved it time and again, including here on the Benatar after challenging Thanos on Titan. And of course, we'll prove it in the ultimate fashion at the end of this movie when he snaps his fingers at Avengers HQ. When Tony carried the nuke into space, he called Pepper. And there's no one else he could have called. His message to her here is one more bookend, a reflection of the constants and the anchors in his life amid so much chaos and change. They're going to have a child, though despite his prophetic Infinity War dream, he doesn't know that yet. But he's not thinking here about the life they didn't get to share. He's reflecting with real gratitude on what they did manage to share. He tried to fix the ship, a sequence we see play out like a cosmic version of any other day for Tony down in his lab. I think, you know, one of the... I'm I'm always looking for the Star Wars references too, and this was like pure... Empire Strikes Back. Just oh, yeah. Han trying Han to fix John Chewie fixing the, the Falcon. Han trying to fix the Falcon for the entire movie. Harley's mechanic at work, basically. Here, it, it, there's so many like different strands. It's wonderful. Pep, I know I said no more surprises, but I got to say I was really hoping to pull off one last one. The futurist always <laughs> finds a way, and the fact that Tony is accepted. Oh, Though it hurts him, the fact that this time he might not is one of the strongest indications of how far he's come as a character throughout all of these movies. When I drift off, it'll be like every night lately. I'm fine, totally fine. I dream about you because it's always you. And as he whispers this, we can see the swirl of stardust and the light and the void behind him, the contrast and scale between the vastness of what Tony anticipated and confronted and the intimacy he ultimately craved. I love that. Tony returns to that life after Captain Marvel rescues him. And Carol found Tony because Steve, Thor, Nat, Bruce, Rhodey, Pepper, they sent her for him. They never gave up on finding him. And as he exits the Benatar, he falls into Pepper's arms with unsurpassed relief that she's there, that she didn't vanish too. 
But that's not actually his first reunion. Cap is. And they have not seen each other since Civil War. It is so strange to think think about. about. It almost feels wrong to say that out loud. But even though Tony carried the burner phone that Cap mailed to him at the end of Civil War and kept it on him all that time, he didn't get to make the call before he zipped up to space. The bickering and the resentment will surface for them quite soon, like one scene later. (laughs) But the very first exchange is one of complete and total grief, pathos, and vulnerability. Tony looks at Cap, anguish on his face, and he says, I lost the kid. Now, as we have talked about before, Peter could have vanished anywhere. It wasn't because he was on Titan with Tony, but the fact that Tony feels this way, that he bears this responsibility, shows how much he cares, how Mm -hmm. much he's matured. This isn't the brash, what if somebody had died? Different story, right? Because that's on you, and if you died... I feel like that's on me, the Tony scalded Peter with back in Spider-Man Homecoming. This is just pure despair for Tony, an embodiment of the way in which he thinks, believes that he has failed, failed to protect yes. Peter, failed to protect Earth. That he's saying this to Cap of all people heightens the impact and the sadness exponentially because Cap is one person Tony wouldn't want seeing him this way, wouldn't want thinking he had failed. Yeah, and it's a gotta, sign of how... Gotta hurt so much. Desperately unmooring their defeat was that yeah. Tony voices this, an articulation of the kind of raw nerve that he used to hide beneath his armor and his ambition. Yeah, again, it's uh, we uh, mentioned it before in this pod, but it's just, that's what's so great about their characters is how much they often clash, but also how much they just like desire respect the respect of the other. Yes. When Tony sees Peter's picture during the group debrief, he just wilts. And when Cap, of course, hungry for uh, for some intel, ready to figure out what the plan is, mm-hmm. starts asking Tony, "Okay, so uh, you know, what do you got? How do we fight him?" Tony's like, "Fight him? What? The f-? <laughs> like, I didn't fight him. No, he wiped my face with the planet. Well, the magician gave away the store. That's what happened." <laughs> There was no fight because he's not beatable. Oh, man. Um, Tony is, we should mention, like, absolutely delirious. He is. His body (laughs) is a fucking skeleton. Like, get my guy a juice box. (laughs) I wouldn't even, like, honestly, this is on cap. Tell this man to go to bed and don't be asking him about shit right now. Yeah, I agree. Like, <laughs> gotta like, let Tony get an nap in. <laughs> yeah, why are you hounding him right now? What do you got? So, you know, what, Shower, what do you a nap, and IV, some calories. <laughs> this please. guy weighs 85 fucking pounds. <laughs> Can we wait a second? He's so specific, dude. Did you get any coordinates? <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> it's really insane. It's like, <laughs> what? Steve. Oh, God. Yo, chill out, dude. (laughs) Can this guy eat like three or four cheeseburgers first and then take like a really long nap? Love those cheeseburgers. (laughs) Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, But in addition to the weakness of his physical body, he's, he's emotionally distraught. He's destroyed. And that feeling comes from that feeling of failure that he had been unable to prevent the thing that he knew that was 
going to happen. He knew it was coming and he couldn't stop it. He tells the group about the vision he had back in Age of Ultron. And when Cap thinks, (laughs) I'm usually on Cap's side, but he's just like an absolute, he's just being such a dick right here. (laughs) (laughs) He just really cares. I don't like it. Like he said in Civil War, he doesn't mean to make things difficult. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. She's like, "Uh, Tony, I need you to focus up. And I needed you as in past tense. That trumps what you need. It's too late, but sorry. He calls back to Ultron in Civil War to the, uh, the suit of armor around the world plan that he had. To the way their concern for uh, the about the definition of freedom ended up driving them apart. Well, that didn't work out, did it? <laughs> Wait, Captain America says shit like a fucking Boy Scout. I said we lose, Tony replies, calling back to their signature exchange in this Ultron. kills me. You said, we'll do that together too. And guess what, Cap? We lost. And you weren't there. And of course, this is completely unfair. Tony has no idea what was going on on Earth. It was like, really hectic there too it was not a fucking walk in the park they were not like feet up at the <laughs> avengers compound like fucking ordering postmates okay but tony is just like processing all these feelings of inferiority by lashing out at the person who sometimes stood as his foil even when they were on the same team i got nothing for you cap i got no coordinates I got no clues, no strategies, no options, zero zip, not no trust. Liar. The way he says liars really just cuts. Because for all of their differences, they aligned to build the Avengers. Not the pre-Avengers. Avengers. (laughs) Remember what Cap said to Tony in the wake of their rupture in Civil War? We all need family. The Avengers are yours. Maybe more so than mine. I would, it would be so annoying listening to Steve's voice like all the time, just being like sounding like he's right all the time. And and I personally find is. it so soothing. I know I just, you do. It's like, wouldn't that be great, actually? <laughs> it <would. laughs> to just have someone who always felt like they knew what was right. God. <laughs> know, in this case, it's like there's literally a bag of bones before him. He's like, okay, so what did you, you notice? What did you see? <laughs> That part is iconic. It's so funny. Steve Rogers has, of course, never been perfect. And that's never been more obvious than this scene. Despite appearances, he has always strove to tell the truth. Tony knows what he's saying here is the thing that will absolutely cut Cap. Yes. Deliberate wound. Yes. Tony's resentment toward Cap does not last over the intervening five years, but Jay, his devotion to bell bottoms does. <laughs> Man, he exits his eco compound, wide legs, slacks, proudly it's a swinging. Weird cut. It is it's crazy. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Just don't show his. Just don't shoot his legs anymore. <laughs> shoot him from the. Shoot him from the knee up. It's unbelievable <laughs> how 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 wide the bell is. <laughs> and he approaches his tent and he calls out for Maguna. Like, what is, what's going on here? And then he says, Morgan H. Stark wants some lunch. As we mentioned in our Infinity War pod, this is not Morgan of the comics, Tony's villainous cousin. This is Tony's daughter. He and Pepper, they did it. They had a baby. Just as Tony dreamt they would. Morgan comes out of the tent. 
She's wearing a repulsor glove, just like dad, and the rescue armor helmet that Tony built for Pepper (laughs) and that Pepper will wear in the Battle of Earth at film's end. And Morgan is not just wearing it. She found it, as we talked about at length. What if she blew blew up the house? (laughs) What if she legitimately blew up the house? (laughs) God, Tony. (laughs) Digging around in the garage, searching and exploring, just like dad. And it is, you know, we, we... we, we joke at Tony's expense. It is really difficult to overstate how amazing it is to see Tony like this. Agonizing on a rewatch, knowing that he only had these five years with Morgan before his death, but also just so inspiring, so touching to see him so in his element like this. He loves being a dad. He loves having a family. It's just so, so wonderful. And it tugs at the heart to observe Steve and Nat when they arrive with Scott seeing Tony in this light, seeing that he found a type of peace, his slice of a different kind of life. And he's holding Morgan in one arm and the rescue helmet in the other as they pull up. And he may as well have a devil and an angel on each shoulder, or at least mm-hmm. two angels that represent yep. these two different poles pulling at him. And Tony voices very reasonable thoughts and concerns. Scott's return, which they've told him about, was a miracle, a billion to one, a fluke surefire path if they attempt to replicate it to what he calls their collective demise. If they try this, they could actually make things worse. Steve Rogers replies by saying, I don't believe we would. And Tony says, I gotta say, I sometimes miss that giddy optimism. (laughs) This is the best. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It really is like so good. He's just like, are you my guy? And don't play trade of Stevens. I love it. But <laughs> it's not just referential comments and back to the future dunks for Tony in the sequence. He tells them that he If you die, <laughs> walk it off. <laughs> that is still one of the best peps, pep docs. Love that one. Of course, Quicksilver couldn't listen. Tough yeah. for him. <laughs> Tony tells them he cannot do what they're asking. I wish you were coming here to ask me something else, anything else, he says. And when Cap tells me he gets it, he's happy for him, but they have a second chance here. What does Tony say? I got my second chance right here, Cap. Can't roll the dice on it. Remember Tony's words back in Iron Man 3 to Pepper. I have to protect the one thing that I cannot live without. That's you. And this is still true for him, still the orienting principle of his life. The thought of losing Pepper and now Morgan is not one he can entertain. Yeah. While, again, absolutely needlessly hand-washing dishes. It's just absurd. Every rewatching, it's, it's I'm stranger. Sorry. I, I, yeah, it's just, it's doesn't, it's a fucking huge, huge record scratch. Huge record scratch. <laughs> <laughs> just gigantic record scratch. He could, like, touch a, a small button on his chest and all of a sudden be covered in a suit of armor, but he's, like, there with a dirty rag toweling down dishes. Okay. Tony picks up a photo of Peter which is next to a photo of Howard right above the sink, yeah. cementing the nature of the relationship between Tony and Pete. He can't risk losing Morgan, of course, but can he pass up the chance to bring back Peter? Of course he can't. Friday, invert that Mobius strip. <laughs> we have about 15 seconds to invent time travel. If Tony did have a dishwasher, mm-hmm. he would have solved the time heist quicker and 
he could have run a complete cycle. It's true. (laughs) This is absolutely one of my absolute favorite scenes. Morgan interrupts his breakthrough with her absolutely precious cursing and her juice pop ploy. Tony, that's extortion, which sums up Tony's quandary nicely. (laughs) The little potty mouth popsicle fiend pulling him from the rendering. Tony balancing what he has with what he could be. The ensuing scene is so touching, a treasure chest to cherish in the wake of Tony's death. This tiny moment encapsulating alongside his nanotech and time-space GPS what Tony really achieved. I love you 3,000, Morgan says after Tony wipes her mouth with his shirt. Now in full-on dad mode. Wow, he says after Morgan's proclamation. He smiles, looks down, bites on the popsicle stick so sweetly, soaking up being a father in this moment. 3,000. This is the guy who used to shout, hammer needs a slot, (laughs) pissing his own suit party trick. Uh, Here's what I love about this scene. One, of course, the whole thing, Tony hand-washing dishes, casually inventing a fucking time travel, (laughs) just like in his before bed, like before going up to brush his teeth. But also, (laughs) one, the callback to him saying shit in Ultron when Captain America is like language. And now it's the reverse of that. But also the next level callback to Captain America with the popsicle which makes you think of Steve Rogers Caps frozen in ice. Yeah. yeah, it's like, it's just like a really, really fun so scene. Good. Really fun scene. This this movie is just so good at tying these little loops. I, I gotta say, see that scene when when Tony tucks in Morgan and wipes her face, puts her head on the pillow and the look on his face when she says, I love you 3000, that's one of the things that sticks with me the most from this movie. Really incredible. Tony comes downstairs, <laughs> tells Pepper that he solved it. <laughs> Another amazing sequence ensues. It's good. But that doubt, there it is again. Something tells me, he says to Pepper, I should put it in a lockbox, drop it to the bottom of the lake and go to bed. He has a sense of doom yet again. What does Pepper say? But would you be able to rest? There's that amazing exchange where he says, I can't help everyone. And she says, it kind of seems like you can. When he fades away after snapping and beating Thanos, that's what Pepper will call back to. You can yep. rest now. Because Tony never stopped, never slowed down. There is a ton of work to do before he can rest. And an Etron drive to HQ. <laughs> amazing, amazing entry from Tony. I'll tell you, Audi got their money's worth. Throughout oh, the yeah. life of the MCU, they got their products in front of millions of eyes. Incredible stuff. I love when Tony zips right by Cap and then very slowly reverses. <laughs> Even with them, so good. Let me guess, he says, immediately upon seeing the glum expression on the cat's face. So funny. This he turned into a baby. This this legitimately kills me every time. Yeah, Tony, what are you doing here? (laughs) So good. It's just like vintage Tony Stark. Well, thank God I'm here, he says. There's a touch of gray in his hair now, but all of that customary swagger that we've been soaking up since 08 still in place. I just want peace, he says, and he flashes the peace sign, calling back not only the lake house divide, but all of Cap and Tony's history from their contentious start in the Avengers to their disastrous fallout in Civil War. But the idea of peace has never been a straightforward one for Tony. Think back to how he boasts in Iron Man 2 of privatizing world peace. (laughs) <laughs> or how Ultron, one of those many demons Tony created, weaponized the idea of peace against 
Tony. This is peace in my time, Ultron said. It's one of the many ways in which Tony has evolved. Peace is not trying to dunk on Congress and embarrass people or unilaterally <laughs> create a new AI or push through the accords because he can't really come to terms with his own guilt and shame. Peace now is made person to person, one conversation and step at a time. And there's nowhere else that could start for Tony Stark than with Steve Rogers. Turns out resentment is corrosive, Tony says, and I hate it. Me too, Steve says. And Tony lays it all out for him. Bring back what we lost? I hope yes. Keep what I found? I have to at all costs. And then he adds, absolutely crushingly, and maybe not die trying would be nice. Gutting. Cap does not view that proclamation from Tony as selfish. Doesn't think that this is just another version of the old Tony who once earned that big man in a suit of armor derision from him. He knows Tony is scared and he understands it because Tony is showing that to him. Honestly, at long last, these two can see each other clearly. But of all the gestures Tony makes, this is clearly the biggest. He opens his trunk, dumps off some, he just like has stuff in there. <laughs> and of course, what? Cap shield. A shield, recall, that he took from Cap seven years prior. That shield doesn't belong to you. You don't deserve it. My father made that shield at the end of Ooh. Civil War. And what is an absolutely heartbreaking line. Yeah. And Cap dropped it. And then they put that incredible sound effects of just like the echoing as it hits the ground. <laughs> Leaving the, the item that had been inextricable from his sense of self since shortly after he took the serum decades ago. Something that you could, it, it was easily, you could define as being part of his body. Tony, I don't know, he says here. So much has changed for him in the intervening years as well. Why? He made it for you. He follows with some signature humor. Plus, honestly, uh, I have to get out of the garage before Morgan takes it sledding. Oh, yeah, this like that would be the, the least dangerous thing that she can find uh, just laying around the fucking house. Um, <laughs> but the, he made it for you is the only thing Tony needs to say by way of an apology. The best way he could possibly find to show Cap that he's ready to move forward together again as a team, as the heart of the Avengers. We are getting the whole team, yeah? It's time to reform the Avengers, their shared family. There is no shortage of foreboding in Tony's arc in this film and the trailers for it across his entire story. During the time-wise prep sequence, love <laughs> Rocket saying, take it easy, you're only a genius on Earth, pal. Great shit. That's, I, it's honestly I iconic. I know you love that. <laughs> I, absolutely iconic. Yeah, it's like they see, they see better tech than this every day. Come on. But Tony's... Our history <laughs> framing in this planning sequence is there to signal danger. Their history means battle, war, risk, but also memories. As we talked about in our Endgame Part 1 pod, theirs together, ours with them, watching their stories, watching these movies, the ins and outs of the time heist might gnaw at you a little bit logically when you stop to think about them, but they, they just cease to matter as we revisit the beats of our decade in the Infinity Saga, our time with these characters, our time with Tony. And during Cap's pregame speech, which we'll talk about from his perspective in a few minutes, during that speech, there is a moment that he and Tony share that is worth just reflecting on for a minute. I love this so much. 
the final line of Cap's pep talk to the group before Rocket and Scott express their awe is this. This is the fight of our lives and we're going to win whatever it takes. And as he says that, Tony looks at him and smiles. Cap looks right back at him. The mix and surge of emotions that this sparks in a rewatch is really supreme. The, the, the look that Tony gives to Cap, raised eyebrow, corner of his lip, flicking up, it calls back again to that exchange in Ultron that they already referenced with each other in this movie. But instead of throwing this back in Cap's face here, as Tony did five years ago when he returned from space, he's looking at him with just appreciation. Appreciation for their shared history, for Cap's shift to insistent, stubborn belief again. They can't lose together now. They have to win. It's the only option. But it's not just that. It's the clarity we have on a rewatch that the whatever it takes will come in the form of Tony sacrificing his life, of Nat sacrificing her life on Vormir, as any of them would have done. It's about all of the Avengers, but there's something so heightened about it here for Tony and Cap in particular as they look at each other. And as Christopher Marcus put it in the writer's interview with the New York Times' Dave Itzkoff, quote, in a way, he, meaning Tony, has been the mirror of Steve Rogers the entire time. Steve is moving towards some sort of enlightened self-interest and Tony's moving to selflessness. They both get to their endpoints. It's an amazing way of putting it. But as we've talked about during the entire run, the coolest part about it is not just the way that they both grow and the way they cross over that middle point in the opposite direction of each other. It's that they needed each other to help get there. And you feel that so much in that moment like, like this. I love it. There are so many fun callbacks in the time heist in particular. Scott saying, I'm going inside you makes us think of him climbing inside Tony's suit in Civil War. Thor telling Alexander Pierce they're off for a bit of lunch before returning the Tesseract to Asgard recalls the shawarma kicker. The list is endless. A, a wonderful, warm bath of fond reflection. It will never be anything less than completely iconic that Loki, unwatched... <laughs> can't, can't get over it. No one is keeping an eye on him! Can somebody put a gun on him. Somebody look at him. As Tony's heart is treated and Hulk bursts through the stairs, uses that. Why didn't Hulk just jump? Every time I watch this, I'm like, yeah. just jump off the fucking building and jump down. I guess he mm -hmm. could have le legitimately just killed somebody if he did it. But like, just jump. I guess he can't jump partway down. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, it's just like iconic. Loki uh, using the Tesseract to immediately port himself to God knows where. Unbelievable. It is amazingly problematic in terms of the movie's own timeline, offshoot logic, but it's hilarious. And be a gateway, obviously, into the Disney Plus show. So, listen, it's by this logic that I uh, want Black Widow to return to the series. We can figure something out, can't we? I guess I know she got the Soul Stone. We can go get another dimensional version of her, can't we? Anyway. Yeah. Did it with Gamora, why not? As Tony and Scott Bigger, Cap keeps a level head, and then Tony solves it. Get the Tesseract and more particles in one go. Little stroll down memory lane, military installation, garden state. As Scott observes, dumbfounded. 
Steve and Tony have this little shorthand, an ability to communicate and navigate forged in the fire of their past relationships. It's like watching a married couple, you know, or a, or a couple that's been together for a while, just saying things that only the other can decipher. Cap asks when Tony gives him the GPS coordinates. 4-7-1970. If Tony's wrong, that's it. They'd have no more pin particles. They're stuck in the past, as Scott reminds him. Thanks for the pep talk, pissant, Tony says. <laughs> Imagine being like, yeah, what's, so what's Tony Stark like? He calls me pissant? <laughs> and then Tony asks Cap the only question that really matters uh, for this movie and for their relationship. You trust me? The question that a decade of our movie going 11 years of their lives together has built to. I do, Cap says. And of course he means it. Your call. Here we go. There could be no more fitting pivot point on which Endgame could hang than a moment in which Cap and Tony are tested together, not by some outside force, but by their own belief in the other. Absolutely. The sequence at Camp Lehigh is just a joy. A joy, a treat for Tony and for us alike. He doesn't just get the Tesseract and easily. I mean, that's wild, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he cuts, he finds it in a second. <gasps> like security, incredibly lighter on the Tesseract, folks. What do we do? <laughs> well, you know, everyone like Howard is off looking for Zola. So <laughs> yeah, like nobody yeah, can guard the Tesseract. <laughs> Real tough moment. I definitely don't like to be reminded that our good friends Peggy and Howard worked very, very, very closely with Arnim Zola for a number of years. It's really rough. Ever since we recorded the part one pod, which I know has only been a few days, but, you know, time works differently in both the quantum realm and the binge mode season. I can't stop thinking about your question. Why couldn't Steve just leave a note that said Zola equals Hydra? I just can't yeah, stop just thinking like, about it. Yeah, just write it somewhere. <laughs> You know, if they find it, they find it. it. How can you go back and not say anything? They're going to work with this guy for even more years. It's not like, you know, it's it's crazy. Timeline is already fucked. Howard and Tony. For the first time since so much in Tony's own life has changed, he's getting to see his father, the new perspective that he has on Howard's death, the new perspective that Tony has after his time as Iron Man, after his own time as a father. There is added resonance in this sequence, knowing the cap is there too, given how much Howard's history with and affection for Steve Rogers soured Tony on cap in the early days. Never forget the line from Tony the Cap in Civil War. God, I hated you. Specifically because his father didn't. That all feels at once inextricable from their journeys. And just like so, so, so very long ago. For Tony, so is much of the bitter resentment that he carried for his own father for so long. When he sees Howard, who, again, really can't can't mention it frequently enough, is looking for Chief Hydra spy Arnim Sola in the innermost bowels of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s lair. He isn't thinking of ways in which Howard let him down. He's just overcome by what a, a precious gift it is, much like the scene with Thor and Frigga that we'll talk about later, to see his parent, to see someone he lost again, to speak to his father, to tell him things, even in coded form, that he never got to tell him before. 
He is so flustered, which is not at all like Tony, that yeah. he calls himself Howard. <laughs> That's fucking great. Well, that'll make Amazing it easy. Howard Potts <laughs> almost leaves the Tesseract behind. Tony is knocked even further off his bearings when Howard says that the flowers and sauerkraut, folks, if you're still looking for a Valentine's Day idea <laughs> that he's carrying, are for his expecting wife. How far along is she? Here's Howard's quote. She's at the point where she can't stand the sound of my chewing. Tony smiles so sweetly when he hears that because it's this little, this little nugget from his parents' life. How wonderful. And Tony tells Howard that he has a little girl, something he, of course, never got to share with his parents in the primary timeline. Howard says, oh, it would be nice to have a daughter. Quote, less of a chance she'd turn out exactly like me. Now, it's absurd that Howard would think that a daughter couldn't be like her father. But anyway, mm -hmm. Tony's reply is, <laughs> oh, Howard. <laughs> Tough look for our guy, Howard Stark there. This guy works very closely with a Nazi. I think he might have some blind <laughs> spots about things. Oh, God. When Tony says this here to Howard, though, he's just showing a level of growth and forgiveness that is really extraordinary for him. And Howard asked Tony if he has any advice on being a dad, showing how nervous he is, but also how much he cares. An interactive, heightened version of, I mean, kind of in a way, barf, actually, Tony's desire to explore his own memories. But here it is, a yeah. real conversation, a new one, something fresh. This heightened version of finding Howard's message to him on the old reels back in Iron Man 2. I built this for you. Tony can see here Howard was building it for Tony even before Tony was born. What does Tony say to him? He says to Howard, he did his best. And he hugs him. This moment of pure catharsis. Barf, man. What a weird move from Tony Stark. Tony is not a native of Nidav Lear, but he still managed to build a nano gauntlet to hold the stones are present. <laughs> <laughs> I made a few updates to the Infinity <laughs> Gauntlet on my own. Oh, God. As is the unflinching courage Tony Cap and Thor maintain as they walk together toward Thanos. You could not live with your own failure. Where did that bring you? Back to me. <laughs> he tells them, and that sums up so much of the Infinity Saga, so much of their shared story, so much of Tony's arc, sometimes that led him astray. But not always, not here. Yep, we're all kinds of stubborn. Tony tells him, facing down the threat that haunted him for years, facing down the Titan, who beat him and wiped away mm -hmm. half of all life, facing down the creature who could cost Tony the life he has now, his family, the joy he found, though Morgan is nestled comfortably elsewhere. Some of that family arrives here in the battle. Pepper in her rescue armor, flying back to back with Tony and just like a, what a capstone image that is to the entire Incredible. opening of the final battle. Incredible. One second they were there, now they're here. Seeing Peter, but Tony, the relief, the love on his face are overpowering. He just leans in for the hug. An incredible callback to the car ride in Homecoming when Peter went for the hug and Tony said he was going for the door. And of course, to Peter <laughs> falling into Tony's arms in Infinity War as he was about to fade to ash. Oh, Peter says, this is nice. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Stark, yeah, the guy showed up and he started doing the, the circle thing and the gold stuff. Shut up. What? Uh, he's, uh, it's wonderful. 
It's so good. Peter tells Tony something that the audience needs to hear. Doctor Strange told him when they returned that it had been five years and everyone needed them. He knew. They are, as he told Tony, in the end game now. And when Tony sees Strange, he asks him about exactly that. Hey, you said one out of 14 million we win, yeah? Tell me this is it. If I tell you what happens, it won't happen. The timeline is so fucked up already. Just tell him. Just tell him exactly <laughs> what to do. I honestly, like, I, I just keep... Uh, you think about so many different things and notice so many different things on a rewatch. I can't yeah. stop thinking about how Stephen Strange must be like Howard at the end of Uncut Gems waiting for that fucking <laughs> final parlay to hit just watching all these moving parts fall together in just the right way being like oh my god please let it be the one <laughs> there are just so many moving parts in this sequence a lot of characters a lot of action including doc strange damn plugger pepper and valkyrie helping peter after instant kill <laughs> couldn't get it done well, I mean, he was, there was all, so many to kill. So many. Carol is so menacing to Thanos that his army turns all of its firepower toward her. Peter, still using his real name to introduce himself, folks. Hi, I'm Peter Parker. <laughs> nice to meet you, Peter Parker. The A-Force charge, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. But Thanos explodes Luis's van right before Carol reaches it, the miniaturized portable quantum tunnel. And that is the moment. That's when Tony sees the gauntlet there on the ground. Carol nearly stops Thanos after he knocks Tony aside and he dons the gauntlet again. But she's there before he can snap. And if he hadn't thought, and it's a really savvy move, honestly, to pull the power stone yeah, out of the gauntlet to use it to cast her away, she... Uh, she had him beat. She did. He's he's very, very cagey. You got to watch out. <laughs> when he uses that power stone to cast away Carol, Tony looks up. And Stephen Strange looks at him. And he holds up one finger. And no matter how many times I see this movie, until the final viewing before my own death, this will still give me chills. This is it. The one in 14 million. Watching this, it is impossible for us, surely like many of you listening, to not think back to these words of Dumbledore's from Deathly Hallows. Quote, Harry must not know, not until the last moment, not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? Ugh. This is that moment for Tony. Any sooner, and he might have felt that he was running along the tram lines, playing out something predetermined. But here it is his choice. It doesn't matter, actually, that Doctor Strange has foreseen this. Every step that Tony and the Avengers took brought them here to where this was possible. They chose to take every one of those steps, including this one. Tony, of course, doesn't want to die. And his character's journey has been defined by a journey from selfishness to selflessness. And he doesn't want to leave Morgan. He doesn't want to leave the life he has with Pepper. But he can't leave this mission unfinished. 
This has always been the end game for Tony in a way, peace in his time. That doesn't make it easy. We think here as he absorbs Strange's signal of another line from Deathly Hallows, he envied even his parents' deaths now. This cold-blooded walk to his own destruction would require a different kind of bravery. He reaches for the gauntlet, and when it seems like he's lost, when Thanos swats him away, gasp in the movie theater. It was dead quiet. I am inevitable. Thanos snaps. And nothing happens! What? Turns the glove over. Gems, gone. Cut to Tony. He's got him. They're sliding into place. They're in his gauntlet. And the energy that we know a human can't handle, that nearly killed Thanos, that absolutely shredded Hulk's arm, courses through him. I'm just a man in a can, Tony told Pepper in Iron Man 3. But what a powerful thing that is. And what a gift it was to watch Tony realize it. And I am Iron Man. It's good. Oh, it's so, it's good. Like, so when did you, <gasps> that was one of the first things I did when I got to watch it the next time is really try and pay attention to how he gets them. Because yeah. the first time it was just incredible. Every, it, everything it. was happening so fast and it was just the shock of it. Yes. But it, it really is just a brilliant move by, by Tony Stark to make it out of the nano gauntlet and therefore be able to just kind of like have it react to his own armor. Great. Tony Stark genius turns out. Eat shit, Rocket. (laughs) We will never forget what it felt like to watch this for the first time. How proud we were of Tony. How much more appropriate it felt really for him to die if he had to die here on the grounds that he built for the family that he chose then up in the vacuum of space that filled him with all that dread. He and the Avengers fulfilled their promise. Earth was closed for business, just like Tony said. Quote, I think in a way Tony Stark was meant to die, Joe Russo told Anthony Bresican for Entertainment Weekly in 2019. And he always knew he was going to die because he could never reconcile that notion in himself of not protecting the universe. I think that was always a spark in him. Always seeing that there was danger coming on the horizon and that someday he and that danger would meet. (sighs) And the first person to go to Tony after Thanos and his army vanish is Rhodey. And they don't speak, but they they don't need to. Everything can just pass between them in that instant. Mm. And Peter's next. And it, it is honestly just crushing. His voice is quivering as he asks, Mr. Stark, can you hear me? It's Peter. Hey, we won, Mr. Stark. We won. And that line. It's the same thing Cap told Tony back in the Avengers after Tony made that sacrifice play, took the nuke up into the sky. The thing that Cap promised Tony, they would find a way to do here. You did it, sir. You did it. I'm sorry, Tony, please. Just gutting. And then Pepper has to pull Peter away as Peter is like clawing at Tony's chest. Peter, who has known so much loss in his own young life already too. And Tony, when he sees Pepper, finally speaks hate Pep. That's all he has the strength left to say. And Pepper, who has awakened so much in Tony, gives him one last beautiful little gift. She tells him that they're going to be okay. You can rest now. And as the arc reactor light goes out in his chest, he does. We, of course, do hear from Tony once more because my guy wrote his own eulogy and just (laughs) the incredible restraint from my guy, Tony, to not do it in barf. Really weird shit from Tony Stark. 
but I love it. And I, I would expect nothing less from him. The message is embedded in his helmet and it's for Morgan, for Pepper, the Avengers, and of course the audience that has spent so much time with this character. Everybody wants a happy ending, right? He says over the scenes of the world, celebrating the long road back to whatever the new normal will look like. And Tony's loved ones mourning in his funeral. But it doesn't always roll that way. Maybe this time, I'm hoping if you play this back, it's in celebration. And of course it is. God, what a world. Universe now, he says. One more insight from our futurist. He says that he's unsure if they'll survive the time heist, but he's made peace with that and what that means with what his choices, his legacy as Iron Man have always meant. That again, that's the hero gig, right? Part of the journey is the end. <laughs> he's speaking not only of his life and of his work, but of our journey with the Avengers and this phase of the MCU and what a journey it was. We can only say to Tony exactly what he says to Morgan at the end of this message. I love you, 3000. Pepper at the funeral sends the original arc reactor with its proof that Tony Stark has a hard message out on the water as they say farewell. And Morgan asks Happy for a cheeseburger, just like her dad once did. Even Fury back in the mix emerges from whatever <laughs> spider hole he's been in. He's allowed there. Thunderbolt needs to leave. That I mean, uh, it, it never fails to shock me that, to that Thunderbolt Ross has the absolute unmitigated <laughs> gall to be at that fucking... <laughs> That's the life he's been striving for, Marcus told the New York Times' David Itzkoff of Tony's final act. Are he and Pepper going to get together? Yes, they got married. They had a kid. It was great. It's a good death. It doesn't feel like a tragedy. It feels like a heroic, finished life. Woo! Let's talk about Captain America. Ever heard of him? Our first glimpse of Cap shows him shaving his beard, much to my chagrin. Yeah, it looks great, but so did the beard. But... He's not just parting with his resplendent facial mane. He's trying to shed that weight, the weight of his time as Nomad, his life on the run, the loss against Thanos. He's working to reincorporate himself into the once familiar rhythms of existence. Recall the last things that we heard from Cap, first in Wakanda, after the snap, and then in the Captain Marvel mid-credits singer as the surviving Earthbound Avengers watched the count of the vanish rise and rise and rise. Oh, God. And this is a nightmare. Not the kind of thing we're used to hearing from Captain America. And when Cap sees Tony return, some of his hope is restored. If Tony was out there, who else might be? It's just not in his nature to quit, to stop fighting ever. But it is in his nature to speak truly. And so when Tony says, I couldn't stop him, Cap says, neither could I, admitting their shared remorse to each other. And Tony saying, I lost the kid, elicits no judgment from Cap. Tony, we lost, he says in response, showing Tony that this is a, a shared despair. And that despair is visible on his face as he watches Tony and Pepper embrace. It's a really quick little moment, but it's a very sad one. Of course, Steve Rogers is overjoyed that Tony and Pepper are reunited back together, but there's something other than relief on his face too. There's longing because he doesn't have that. He wants that kind of life, that kind of connection. The right partner. We already discussed the Tony Cap fight at the top of the Tony section. Liar. But that's in Cap's heart and mind as he sets off to try to beat Thanos. The actual plan to find the stones, use them, bring everyone back is Carol's, but Cap takes zero convincing. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. He even calls Thanos a <laughs> son of a bitch, which is 
like boy, the C word for Cap. I mean, it's... <laughs> Wait, Cap curses <laughs> twice in this movie. He's really on one. <laughs> he's very, he's angry. Yeah. He's the really angry. brings out a lot of change in people, you know? It really does. There's an amazing moment as Rocket prepares to jump the Benatar when we see the cosmos reflected in Steve's widening eye. This kid from Brooklyn who used to lift trash cans in an alley as an early version of his shield, watching in wonder as the heavens unfold in front of him. The guy who handed Nick Fury 10 bucks when the shield carrier wowed him. <laughs> he would uh, later see approximately 20 shield uh, helicarriers soon to be crashed. Of course. <laughs> Naturally. We spoke earlier in Tony's section about his first trip into space, as we discussed back in our Avengers podcast, and the look in Tony's eye as he dropped back down toward the portal was a haunting one, a reflection of the vastness that always lay just out of view, the threat waiting in the shadows. For Tony, it represented confirmation that there was so much out there to try to understand and to fight. For Steve, it's a moment of pure awe, a rushing into the unfamiliar because the alternative of the world he knows and understands also means a life without half of existence in it. So much of the idea of Captain America is wrapped in what he represents for those uh, people in the universe, for the... Um, for the readers, for the viewers. But in this sequence, he's a stranger in a strange land, pulling out the photo of Peggy and the compass that he's kept all this time, something mooring and familiar and known, an anchor for him. This is going to work, Steve. Nat tells him, smiling. I know it will, he says, because I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't. Those words from Cap are still hanging in our ears along with the whoosh of Thor's axe when the stunning words flash across the screen five years later. Really just an all-time movie moment. We have very few glimpses in the film of how the blip impacted ordinary people. You know, what daily life looks like for the masses five years later. But we get a couple. Scott's sequence running through San Francisco. And here, one of the rare glimpses comes through Steve's eyes. And it's fitting that it does because... Before he received the super soldier serum, he was the embodiment of the everyman, a person who just wanted others to believe in him and let him try to help, let him try to do the thing that he wanted to. He's leading a group counseling session. We must presume as a way to honor Sam, whom Steve watched try to help people this way back in Winter Soldier at the VA center. We all got the same problems, Steve heard Sam say back then guilt, regret. In that film, Winter Soldier, Sam asked Steve what made him happy and Steve answered, I don't know. And all this time later, he's still trying to figure that out. All of these years later, all of these losses later. But he's trying to help other people figure it out too. That's great, Steve tells the man played by director Joe Russo. After he shares that he'll be seeing the man he went on a date with again, unbelievably, 22 yes. films in and lasting for just a moment, this is the first openly gay character in the MCU. Cap goes on to say, you did the hardest part. You took the jump. Steve tells him about Peggy, calling her the love of his life, heart-wrenching moment, reflecting on the sorrow of waking up from the ice. Hey, I'm alive. Only to find that the person that he loved and wanted to share his life with wasn't somebody he could do that with anymore. Gotta move on, he says to the group. The world is in our hands. It's left to us, guys, and we got to do something with it. Otherwise, Thanos should have killed us all. And even though this is intended as a message of hope and encouragement, Steve Rogers is full of 
absolute despair, as he says it. And in some ways, it's one of the the most misery-laden sentiments that he ever expresses across his entire time in the MCU. But it touches us for that very reason, because Steve Rogers may be Captain America, but he's not just that iconography. He's not actually just that symbol, that, that shield or that winged helmet. He is a human being who mourns and dreams. And he's giving this encouragement to himself as much as he's giving it to every other person sitting in that circle with him. And when he visits Nat at Avengers HQ, this is clear. You know, I keep telling everybody they should move on and grow, he tells her. Some do, but not us. It is absolutely no surprise that Steve so readily buys into Scott's time heist plan, despite some initial time machine skepticism. After all, listen, you can tell Scott's serious. He drove cross country just to tell them this. Uh, This is a man who, when Bucky was beating him to death in Winter Soldier, choked out a callback to their shared past. I'm with you to the end of the line. He is not one to give up. It's anathema to him. He can do this literally all day. <laughs> Even when the first Hulk-led test with Scott goes sideways, Steve is not ready to quit. Tony handing him back his old friend's shield isn't just a way to repair the rupture between them. It's a way of restoring something for Steve, too. He so often works to provide those anchor points, those moorings for other people, but he needs them as well. When he told Nat, I think we both need to get a life, she said, not unfairly, you first. Mm. But when it's mission time again, Steve and Tony fall back into their rhythms naturally. The whole group does. It's the start of the second act of the film and our return from a point of pure, all-consuming grief to another moment of shared purpose. As we discussed at length before, It was. it's never been easy or natural for the Avengers to assemble. They all have... Right their own aims, their own desires, their own abilities, their own conflicting, often conflicting personalities. But that makes the moments when they do all the more meaningful. Absolutely. Remember Tony's, uh, oh, actually, he's the boss. I just pay for everything and design everything and make everyone look cooler line from Ultron. Right back into that idea here. Tony solved the time heist. He made the time space GPS and time suits. The setup for the heist is, albeit, of course, with aid from Tony and Hulk and Nat and Thor and everyone in their own fashion contributing to the conversation, the group planning session. Bleaker! <laughs> Sullivan! It's in essence cap leadership time, right? He's, almost everyone in this room has had an encounter with at least one of the six Infinity Stones line. Gets us into that let's run through the scrapbook together setup and the genius, again, time travel logic aside, of the time heist plot in terms of our shared catharsis as viewers and lovers of the MCU. Revisiting the Avengers past means revisiting our time with them, our memories of the first three phases of the MCU and Cap's speech as they set out. Is it signature Steve Rogers moment? Even for a guy who always comes through with the perfect pep talk. This is an all-timer. It is inspiring, full of heart, that clear eyes, full heart energy, paired with a genuine belief and conviction. Most of us are going somewhere we know. That doesn't mean you should know what to expect. Be careful. Look out for each other. This is the fight of our lives. And we're going to win. Whatever it takes. Chills. Chills. What a speech. You love this speech, Jay. I do. It's it's pretty fucking You're great. ready to run into the quantum realm for Cap after hearing this. When I hear that, I'm ready. I mean, again, I, I didn't like the way he treated Tony when Tony was starving to death, but <laughs> when Cap is 
When Cap is on his game, there's nobody better. Again, though, you see that look Tony gives him here and it's all okay. What a perfect moment. That really is incredible. I know. Tony is not the speech guy. You're not the guy to make the speech. <laughs> I would just cut the speech. I would just cut the I would just cut the speech. Sometimes it takes winking at one of the character's most iconic moments. Cap's Hail Hydra elevator scene may completely warp the timelines. What is what does this mean for Sitwell? No, oh, Sitwell now thinks in this timeline that Cap is Hydra. And will absolutely, he will check that with Pierce at some point. He's like, let me ask you something real quick. Steve Rogers, Hydra, or no? That scene is worth it for the nod to the exceptional, of course, Winter Soldier elevator scene fight. That so I really good. thought for a second, we're getting it again. I know. I'm like, how does he get out of this? It's such a, it's such a clever wink to that. I, I really love it. It is wonderful. It's also amazing to see how the Hydra agents inside of S.H.I.E.L.D. just show up and just take the scepter, just take the Mind Stone, these incredibly powerful items, and just we're like going to walk them out of the building, leading it to it ultimately falling into List and Strucker's hands to set up Age of Ultron and to be used to create Pietro, Wanda, and later Ultron and Vision, if indeed they were used to create Pietro and Wanda. Ba-ba-ba! Scott! <laughs> Scott says, I mean, they look like bad guys. Steve himself looks like, looks like a bad guy to 2012 Steve. He thinks it's one of Loki's tricks. Unlike Thor at this time, he seems ready for Loki's mischief. 2023 Cap says, oh, you gotta be shitting me. Language, Steve! Language. <laughs> like everything else in the time heist, the Cap on Cap fight uh, is a treasure trove of Easter eggs and callbacks. The best 2012 Cap saying, I can do this all day in the same way that he told the bully pummeling him in First Avenger, as he told Red Skull in that same film, as he told Tony during their showdown in Civil War. And 2023 Cap saying, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Amazing. That got a real chuckle in the movie theater. <laughs> so funny. And then, of course, the, uh, the thing that uh, gets 2023 Cap out of the fight, the picture of Peggy in the compass, and then using the scepter on himself and then looking at his own ass and saying, that is America's ass. Honestly, just an incredible, iconic I sequence. love it. Mentioning Bucky, saying Bucky is alive to his former self felt like... He's like, what? That, that, was, that was dirty pool. The laughs that we get in that whole sequence transition into just heart-crushing, clenching emotion in the Camp Lee High sequence where a birthplace of Captain America sign hangs out front. <laughs> this is love when Tony says, you weren't... Literally born here. <laughs> so good. This is where Steve threw himself over the dummy grenade without hesitation. This is where Erskine saw quite clearly that he was the one, that he possessed the essential ingredient really needed to make the serum work for good. The compassion, the compassion in his heart. And so much of the dissonance that has torn at Steve since his return from the ice is on display here. The essence of what and who he believed in, but also that foul weed of Hydra's presence rooted as deep as the bunker in which Zola would one day embed his own brain, upload his consciousness <laughs> into all of those Come computers. On, it's all right here. It would have been lovely if Howard had gotten to see Cap, <laughs> given their history and given how we see in, in Agent Carter, Cap's disappearance just, just hung over Howard's life for, for so many years. But of course, that couldn't happen. It would have blown their cover since Cap is supposed to be a capsicle at this point. But Cap gets his moment too with Peggy. 
when he hides accidentally in her office. He doesn't know that's her office and then realizes where he is by seeing his portrait, his photo on her desk. And it's not a picture of him all swole post vitae cocoon, post serum. It's that photo of him as he was before. And there is just this fierce, fierce longing on his face as he looks at Peggy through the glass that she somehow does not see him through. (laughs) Overwhelming love and gratitude. Again, it's one of my favorite moments, but every time I'm like, it's just a a, a sheet of glass and the mini blinds are open. How do you not see Steve Rogers standing there? I get it. He's in shadow. He's wearing one of the, the MCU hats that apparently hide people's faces. Still, beautiful moment. And he's looking at her with just this overwhelming love and gratitude because he gets to see her again in this moment, but also that anguish that comes from knowing that once again, he has to put his own desire aside for a little bit longer to move forward in the fight. And it is just so, so sad. Do you feel like this is the moment right here where he makes his decision that if they win, if they survive, if they do it, that he's going to go back and live his life with her. I feel like this is when it happens, when he sees her here. Yeah, I think that's maybe when it crystallized. But I think he always knew he always that knew. if that was ever on the table, that would be something that he would do. He would definitely go back. Tell her about hooking up with her niece. Right. Tell her, I hooked up with your <laughs> niece, who is like negative uh, 13 years old right now. And... Uh, also, you're working very closely with a Nazi. Um, <laughs> Let's get a dance in. Let's get a fuck in. And then we have some stuff to catch up on, including me hooking up with your family member. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> it's like it's like Scott saying, how did you not know they're bad guys? Do At what point when Zola in his Swiss but German accent is saying, and then you will download me to the computer <laughs> so that I might live forever. I mean, I can't. <laughs> At what point were at what point they were they knew like Zola was a bad guy? That's what Operation Paperclip was. They literally <laughs> arrested him from Red Skull's employee and then recruited him. And then just were like, he's good now. We did it. He didn't want the steak or the milk. Everything's fine. Unbelievable. It's just wild, like, did we do we think we gave him too much of a leash? Jay, it's it's true in the 2010s and it was true in the <laughs> 1970s. No safer place than a shield office. Absolutely zero. Before he and Peggy can be together, there's one more war to win. You lose it again, Tony says, waking Cap after Thanos' attack and handing him back his shield. I'm keeping it. The blast scattered our heroes, but Cap, Tony, and Thor look down on Thanos together. The three primary figures at the dawn of the MCU united against their foe. And when Thanos knocks out Tony and presses Stormbreaker into Thor's chest, we're treated to one of the best moments in the entire MCU. One which made movie theaters worldwide quake with jubilation. A close-up of Mjolnir rising and then shooting back into Cap's worthy hand. Thor saying, I knew it! It is thrilling to see Cap wield Mjolnir, a callback to the comics history of the character, doing exactly the same thing. And to the Ultron wiggle that launched so many theories and so much fan expectation. His first wind-up and swing at Thanos, camera panning wide, the shots of Cap working Mjolnir off his shield in perfect harmony. The moments when he calls the lightning are absolute comics gold. And the fact that it's still not enough that Thanos is strong enough to shred Cap's vibranium shield unbelievable, is just shocking and harrowing. It was never personal. 
You love this line. But I'll let you know. <laughs> but I'll let you know now what I'm about to do to your stubborn, annoying little planet. I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> I love when that little bit of Southern California, like, accent comes out here in Thanos. What I'm about to do to your stubborn, annoying little <laughs> planet. I'm going to enjoy it, man. Yeah. <laughs> going to catch that wave. Oh, man. It was really all about getting toward that moment of leisure time for Thanos, as we know, ultimately. He just wants to ch- He just wants to go to his, to chill. his fucking vacation planet and relax. That's it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, who can blame him? In a way, that line from Thanos, the way he talks about the pestering annoyance of Earth is a badge of honor for Cap, all of our heroes. They brought Thanos to that point of compromising his own vision and belief. He has never had to contend before with a foe who has forced him to question his own intention in this way, which Cap reinforces as he stands up, straps back on, tightening the splintering shield, and begins to walk toward Thanos and his entire army completely and totally alone. Absolute spine-tingling moment. All of his fellows are knocked out or trapped or wounded at this point. And then, hey, Cap, can you hear me? Not a stretch to say that this is a moment that Marvel fans will remember forever. Yeah, it's fucking good. <laughs> so unbelievable. It was, so, it was fucking great. Really an all-timer. The people that they saved, the people they brought back are here and ready to join the fight. The ones that they just saved are now here to save them. Cap it, Sam, can you hear me? On your left, Sam says. And he's calling back to the words that Steve Rogers used to say to him as he passed him lap after lap during their jogs in D.C. A portal opens. T'Challa, Shuri, and Okoye appear. The look on Cap's face at that moment is just hard to match. Surge of pride and hope and belief and possibility. And then Sam soars through and every portal starts to open. Doctor Strange, Mantis, Drax, Quill, Spider-Man, Bucky, Groot, Wanda, Valkyrie, Korg, Wong, Hope, Pepper, on and on and on. Everyone, everyone, everyone. You know, again, as we mentioned last time, a couple a couple notable exceptions. Tough beat here for, for Hank Pym, Luis, Jan, etc. But almost everyone. <laughs> Scott, has unearthed Rocket, Rhodey, and Hulk from beneath the wreckage, and the music builds and surges. And Cap says what MCU fans, and as we mentioned in our Age of Ultron pod, Kevin Feige himself, had waited a decade, a full decade, to finally hear. Avengers! Assemble. And the group charge is an all-time moment. The wide shot, a love letter to the comic book splash page, to the team-up, which you talked about so beautifully in our part one pod in your sanctum. Just complete system overload in some ways, and yet totally perfect. The rhythm and the harmony, absolutely magical. No, give me that, Thor says to Cap, tossing him. 
<laughs> ask him for Stormbreaker, Bray. You have the little one, he says, of Mjolnir. And every character gets their moment. Cap certainly among <laughs> them. When Thanos vanishes after Tony's snap, Cap looks like he can breathe at last. Though, uh, of course, he he shifts into, into tears and mourning when Tony, who did in the end, lay down on the wire that Cap used to talk about, sacrificed himself. I was a little surprised at Thor giving Cap Mjolnir and yeah. taking Stormbreaker because Stormbreaker doesn't have the, you know, the anti-worthiness like lock on it. Yeah. The anti-theft, anti-worthiness lock. I mean, like Thanos almost killed him with it because of that. It's true. Maybe he just didn't want to get used to having Mjolnir again because he knew they were going to have to take it back to 2013 Asgard, you know? It's yeah, for, really true. about finding ways to move forward for Thor at this point. Yeah, that's true. You love the the splash page come to life here, Jay. It's beautiful. I do. It's, it reminds me of... um. The one that reminded me the most of are the splash pages at the end of both Ultimates Volume 1 and Ultimates Volume 2, which were the limited run Ultimate Universe version of the Avengers fighting, uh, you know, an alien version of Hydra, basically a, a cabal of like international supervillains plus Loki. Because there's, it, it, they just go on for multiple double page spreads, and you have to just you can zoom in and just stare at them all day. It's it's amazing to look at that scene, the the charge, and realize that like in the theater, there's literally no way you could focus on on any of it without missing ninety nine percent of it. There's so much happening; it's just yeah. amazing. Every time I'm stunned by how amazing it is. But that's part of what makes it so fun because it rewards all the repeat viewings. Where every time you can catch a new little new little sliver of it that you saw before. There's Howard the Duck. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. I'm always just fascinated, too, at how Scott cannot... He had to have accidentally killed some some <laughs> Asgardians or some Wakandans, right? <laughs> just, when he drops the Leviathan corpse on them or just stomping on them as he, as he takes every step. Yeah, yeah, as he's running up. Probably. As he's just, like, running... <laughs> full speed with everybody like stepping on little bugs cap's work of course isn't quite finished he has to go return the stones and mjolnir to clip the branches as bruce promised the ancient one and avoid offshoots of reality which they have already failed at but let's <laughs> be that as it may he says goodbye to sam and bucky sharing one more taking all the stupid with you call back with buck and then they see him sitting by the lake now old wearing a wedding ring he has the shield from where we don't know. Bucky tells Sam to go ahead towards Steve and that shield. Nice setup for their impending spinoff and a nice nod to the respective comics runs in Captain America. Did something go wrong? Sam asks. Or did something go right? Well, after I put the stones back, I thought maybe I'll try some of that life Tony was telling me to get. And then before the emotion resumes, a quick debate. Was Cap Peggy's secret husband all along? Hopefully not. I mean, obviously anything can happen, but hopefully not. <laughs> The one we conspicuously did not see in Winter Soldier, or did he create a new reality when he stayed behind? The writers, as we mentioned in our Winter Soldier pod, believe Cap was always the husband. The Russos told Bresnikin that Cap branched off in a new reality. So he drove there knowing that it was going to happen that day, right? Well. And snuck in well, to the Avengers base. If he's in another reality, did he? How did he drive there? Well, I mean, clearly he's not in another dimension. He so is... he was the husband all along. <laughs> I 
just like the idea that he was the husband all along, even if it doesn't. I think make it's sense. terrible. I, I honestly, I honestly think it's it would be terrible if that was the case. It would be Is awful. It- so they just, so they just always one. They just always miscap. They just are like, they don't ever. Him look not at- being at Peggy's funeral would be a hard one to to buy. That would be tough. Or any photos of them together, or any of the people that worked with them. Howard Howard Stark not being like, oh, Peggy's husband, Captain America, who I personally knew. Then it's like, so Steve just sat there the whole time while the whole Hydra thing was happening and all the stuff, and he did nothing. He just was literally like, oh, this is good. Fine. We'll have to let all the heroes go through this again. If you already changed the future, then why not change it all the way? You know what I think one of the best bits of evidence for, the, for it being a different dimension that he launched is? The shield bringing back the shield because where does that come from? Otherwise it's gotta it be, can't, but if it's a, but then it can't be a different dimension. Cause how is he there? It's a good question. Well, here's that Russo brothers quote to Bresnikin quote. If Cap were to go back in the past and live there, he would create a branch reality. The question then becomes, how is he back in this reality? to Give the shield away. Interesting question. Maybe there's a story there. So they're going with, we'll answer it in a different story. So he borrows the stones again or mm-hmm. something. No. Or somehow, like, manages to come back into this dimension. But it doesn't make sense that he would be there. It's unless it was the same exact dimension. And then, but then he's still not the husband. They've tied themselves into absolute knots with this. There's really very few solutions here make complete sense. I'm ultimately okay with it because I just am so delighted by seeing Steve and Peggy together at the end of the movie. It's such a perfect end note for the film. But it is one of those things where you ultimately, as a fan, I think you decide which thing you would like better and you accept that really it doesn't make a ton of sense either way. It's so emblematic that the screenwriters and the directors disagree. Yes. Like it's that's that's I, no, that's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And Feige will ultimately decide, right? Not the Russos or McFeely or Marcus. Yeah. Here's my argument for Steve creating the branch reality. One, mm-hmm. Steve was not paying attention when they were talking about the branch reality arguments. <laughs> He was not like, he was not deep dive on that shit. No, because right before they go, he goes back in the quantum tunnel to return Mjolnir and to return all the stones, Hulk reinforces it in that exact moment. He says specifically, you have to put every stone back or we'll have these offshoots of the dimension. And Steve says, don't worry, I'll prune every branch. He understands the stakes. No, but here's the difference. Tony and Banner understand this shit on a level that nobody else really does. So Steve's like, well, we already fucked up. Who cares? Which I, listen, Loki's out in the world. (laughs) Hydra thinks Cap is high. Like there's a million things that have already been changed. So honestly, fuck it. So I think that Mm -hmm. that is less problematic than (laughs) Cap going back, Mm -hmm. being the husband the whole time, no one recognizing him as Captain America, (laughs) him having to create an entire alias uh, that somehow, and, and again, never giving up his ID, Howard Stark not knowing who he is. Zola never realizing that the person he is working closely with is married to Captain America. Like all these things have to Maybe he didn't fall. go to a lot of Shield holiday functions. And then Cap has to be okay sitting on the sidelines as bad things happen to good people. Okay. So on that point, I'd say he would have to do that regardless, unless he just went and in, in the new dimension also was Captain America the whole time. 
But that doesn't seem like the choice he made. The choice he made was to finally live a quiet, different life. So that's a problem either way, that he's just sitting in his beautiful little home, his beautiful little cottage, dancing and fucking up a storm while the world is unfolding around him. He earned that, to be clear. But he would have to make that choice either way. I agree that it doesn't make sense if he was the husband all along. I just personally love it. (laughs) I agree it doesn't make sense. Also, that would make me sad that the Peggy of our primary timeline never got to be with Steve. That would just be so devastating. I can't accept that. It's so heartbreaking. So regardless of where you land on this, one thing is clear. Steve Rogers is happy. He's happy. Remember what Ultron said to Cap back at Claw's base. Ah, Captain America, God's righteous man, pretending you could live without a war. And that cut really, really deep for Cap. But his choice here reinforces what's always been true. Steve Rogers does not actually want to fight. He wants to protect. He wants peace and the life that can flower in the glow of that peace. There's a reason, as we've talked about before, that he holds a shield, not a sword. He never stopped believing in the happy ending. He may not have always thought he was going to find it, but he never stopped believing in it. It's like what Sam says in The Two Towers. Quote, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. And it did. It did for Steve Rogers. And that's amazing. He gives his shield to Sam, a shield to Sam, who looks at Bucky who nods. Another great moment there. Can't wait for Falcon Winter Soldier. And Cap tells Sam to try it and asks him how it feels. And Sam says, Like it's someone else's. It isn't. Tears yet again. Just tears after tears. And then, when Sam sees the ring on Steve's finger, he asks, you want to tell me about her? And Cap says, no. No, I don't think I will. And it's been a long, long time kicks in. The same song that Nick Fury played on Steve's record player back in Winter Soldier and the camera pans and we see Steve and Peggy in each other's arms sharing at last their long promised dance. The one they spoke of in First Avenger, the one they promised each other when Cap took the Valkyrie into the ice, the one that Cap saw in his vision in Age of Ultron. And remember what Peggy said to Steve then. The war's over, Steve. We can go home. Imagine it. And here at last, he doesn't have to imagine it any longer. He can live it with the right partner. What about Thor? Thor is in pain from the very first time we glimpse him, long before the time jump. When Tony back at the HQ asks him what's wrong, Rocket says, he's pissed. He thinks he failed, which of course he did, but there's a lot of that going around, ain't there? Indeed, there is. Thor is not alone in feeling like he came up short. He's largely silent in the debrief and the planning sequences stewing as Rhodey and Carol, filled with remorse after seeing Fury's face among the vanished, go back and forth about that superhero life and the other planets in the universe that needed her help that didn't have the Avengers as Midgard did. I love Rhodey being that superhero life. Come on, man. You didn't even make your suit. Stop it. Just please. Enough. Oh, God. (laughs) I like this one, Thor says, looking at Carol. As he reaches out for Stormbreaker, he is, in the opening sequence before the time jump, decisive in his desire to act. When Carol sees no armies or ships down in the garden, 
Thor is ready. He won't let Thanos take anything else from him or anyone. Yeah, I do. I wonder where the armies went. I my thought yeah. is that Thanos probably just banished them all. He just probably snapped them out too. Doesn't want them fucking up his beautiful retirement. The garden's just for him. Every word Thanos speaks is an insult to Thor, who probably wishes he'd gone for the arm slice back on Wakanda. And when Thanos reveals that the stones are destroyed, reduced to atoms, Thor does exactly what Thanos told him he should have done back in Wakanda. He goes for the head. It's a desperate act from a desperate person who believes that their unthinkable loss is now fixed, that the hell that has engulfed them will not be something they can escape. Gotta say, when you see how easily he chops off the arm, you gotta wonder why they didn't try the arm chop sooner instead of just trying to pull the gauntlet off. The arm chop was yeah, quite trying, effective. Yeah, trying to hold him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess... Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess Tony just didn't think of it and they didn't have anything capable of cutting through Thanos' skin. I mean, yeah, I guess they don't have Stormbreaker up on Titan, but they had it on Wakanda. It's a fair criticism, but also it that falls on Peter Quill because they had it. It was it's true. F- they had him. It's not like they needed to cut the arm. It was done. If Peter Quill can just like cool his jets for 30 seconds, we're finished with this. It's true. When Hulk and Rocket fly to find Thor, our our first response as viewers is is relief. We're in Tunsberg, Norway, the site of so much Asgardian history. Odin's long ago battle with Laufey, Red Skull's theft of the Tesseract, Odin's cliffside farewell to his sons also took place in Norway. And in his Ragnarok visions of his father, Thor heard Odin say, this could be Asgard. Asgard is where our people stand. And so... When we see the sign for new Asgard, we think Thor has found a way, despite the immensity of his sorrow, to rebuild, to channel the lesson that Asgard isn't a place but a people into leadership, newfound purpose. And instead, we find Thor shattered, completely, completely broken. And when Endgame premiered, some fans were were offended by the way Thor's weight gain played for laughs. The depiction of this one-time chiseled god as an overweight alcoholic leading to jokes about him needing to eat salads or his veins being filled with cheese whiz. The Russos talked about their view of Thor's state in an interview with Anthony Breskin at EW saying, quote, even though there's a lot of fun to be had in the movie with his physical condition, it's not a gag. This is uh, Anthony Russo speaking. It's a manifestation of where he is on a character level, and we think it's one of the most relatable aspects of him. I mean, it's a very common sort of response to depression and pain. Valkyrie tells Hulk they only see Thor about once a month when he makes his beer run. He's holed up with Meek and Korg playing Fortnite, yelling at Noobmaster69 and opening beers on Stormbreaker. He has the companionship of a few trusted friends, which is certainly something, but he has broadly receded from the world from the people that need him and from the memory of what he perceives as his own failure. Recall the scene between Thor and Rocket in Infinity War on the way to Nidavellir. He needs the ox. (laughs) Thor had lost so much. His mother, his father, the Warriors Three, Asgard, as a physical place, his brother, Hmm. his best friend Heimdall, (laughs) half of his people. Thanos is just the latest in a long line of bastards and he'll be the latest to feel my vengeance, he tells Rocket fate wills it so Mm -hmm. and what if you're wrong well if i'm wrong then what more could i lose thor pursued his axe and thanos's heart and then thanos's head because it was where his vengeance took him he no longer has that 
to animate him mm-hmm. no longer has that purpose. Instead of looking outside at the surviving Asgardians and seeing a new lease, a reminder of the new home he helped build for those who needed it, he sees the reminder of everything he lost and in his mind failed to avenge. Thor has often been one of the most jovial characters in the MCU, but his arc at this point is tragedy, a portrait of the kind of loss that shakes the foundations of one's entire existence. Thor puts on a a cheerful disposition when he sees Hulk and Rocket, but as soon as Hulk mentions Thanos, that illusion shatters. Don't say that name. He cries to Hulk. Like the the wizards who won't say Voldemort, right? And what did we always hear? Fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. And Thor does fear Thanos. Not, to be clear, in a way that diminishes his, his courage, but as we always like to quote, is that, Game of Thrones line, Bran thought about it, can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. Thor fears what Thanos represents, what he reminds him of. The time when he, like everyone, was not enough. And the really tragic thing is that Thor is not alone in this, but thinks he is. Why don't you ask the Asgardians down there how much my help is worth, Thor says to Hulk here. But his fellow Avengers have all felt their version of that same inadequacy. Some, like Hulk, have processed it by leaning into it head on. How do I improve? How do I, how do I get better? Examining those questions, seeking to overcome what they perceive as their own barriers. Others, like Clint, have completely succumbed to their rage. And still others, like Steve, have worked through their own shame by helping other people do exactly that. But Thor has shut himself off from the world. This sensation of failure magnified for him by just the unrelenting surge of loss that he has experienced, this conveyor belt for him, all of the the deaths that you just went through, of reminders constantly served up for him, hot, fresh, noxious, of all the people that he thinks he could not save. This is a person who used to sit on a roof with Jane Foster and sketch out the branches of the world tree and speak with such joy of the realms and the connections between Mm -hmm. them. He used to smile broadly and gallivant about and explore and fight. But that spark, that spirit is extinguished for him at this point. And instead of seeking the companionship of others, the solace of that shared understanding that they actually could provide, he has receded and isolated himself fully. Back with his Avengers family, Tony's Lebowski nickname now added to the list in a way that makes us want Obadiah Stain on this time heist. Thor is clearly struggling. His rundown of the Aether adventure for the group leads him to mourning his relationship with Jane and his mother's death. His initial incursion into Asgard in 2013 with Rocket leads him right past Loki's cell. He sees digitally reconstituted Jane and the reminders of what he misses all around him, but he can't access them. He can't sink into them. There are less little treasures to fuel him and more sources of torment. He wants some ale to steady them. And then he sees his mother. One of the first deaths in the MCU timeline that Thor would say he failed to prevent. And he happens to be looking at her on the very day that she will die, the day that Malekith came to Asgard for the Aether. Again, like similar to the Cap thing, no like Malekith coming today, dot, dot, dot. Well, he tries to tell her she doesn't doesn't let him. (laughs) 
Heimdall. Well, you go st- <laughs> yeah, but uh, go see somebody else. Like you could just well, technically, he doesn't even need to leave a note for Heimdall. He could just like whisper it into the yeah. into the air in Heimdall's like di- general direction, and theoretically, Heimdall would see it and hear it. Anyway, theoretically, another uh, anyway. Thor from another timeline coming <laughs> in. One more thing, Heimdall missed. Absolutely blew it on this one. Where is where is my guy? What is he doing? <laughs> I'm dull. What if he just got the job because he's Thor's best friend? Famous besties. Thor begins to have a panic attack. Rocket may not be adept and sensitive in his response, asking Thor if he isn't drunk enough, slapping him, telling him to wipe the crumbs from his beard, mocking him for crying, which is unkind. But Rocket's words in his own way are meant to remind Thor that they're in this because their loss is, in fact, shared. And they can do something about it if he will get a grip of himself. Now, I get you miss your mom, but she's gone, really gone. And there are plenty of people who are only kind of gone, and you can help them. It takes a, another pep talk to truly reach Thor, though. Frigga's his mother's. Aside from the, the needless salad stray from Frigga, it is... Other than that, a really, really, really beautiful scene, at once specific to Thor's journey and rife with universal insights about the nature of being alive, trying to find your way through the human experience. Thor is the god of thunder, but he has a human soul and heart and human needs, including comfort and guidance. Frigga is not fooled. That's not Thor's eye. That's not Thor's outfit. You're not the Thor I know at all, she says. And then heartbreakingly adds, the future hasn't been kind to you, has it? He tells her about Thanos. What does she say? Idiot? No. A failure? Absolutely. That's a little bit harsh, she replies <laughs> iconically. But her response to that is just perfection. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be Thor. The measure of a person, of a, a hero is how well they succeed at being who they are. And this is really one of the most precious pearls of wisdom in the entire MCU, because the heroes that we root for, Thor among them, are not actually heroes because of their capes or their hammers or the lightning coursing through their veins. They're heroes because they've decided to devote their lives to trying to help other people and to trying to build a better world. The fact that doing so often seems daunting to them or impossible for them is why they are worthy of our affection in the first place, because they push through that. And that hard-won humility that Thor earned years ago back in New Mexico is still at the core of it all. And for those same reasons, Frigga won't let him tell her about what's about to happen. It's not about knowing the end. It's about living as fully and as as best as you can on the road to whatever that end may be. This was a gift, she tells him. Now you go and be the man. Not the God, not the king. Notice, she says, the man you're meant to be. And before he goes, Thor reaches out his hand, calls Mjolnir to him. I'm still worthy, he says. A true smile, a little ember of belief back on his face. Thor, of course, wants to be the one to wear the glove to snap his fingers to bring everybody back. Just let me do something good, something right. When Thanos arrives, Thor's focus is laser sharp. He knows that this is his chance, the chance that he has been hoping for, that he has sought out to balance the scales. He calls both Mjolnir and Stormbreaker to him and the lightning. He braids his beard. He calls down his armor. 
let's kill him properly this time. And he tries to so fully that he even smiles with shared validation rather than insecurity when Cap lifts Mjolnir. He takes Mjolnir back just for a moment, pairing it with Stormbreaker to try to keep Thanos at bay as Tony goes for the gauntlet. And Cap comes to help. And there's the harmony of their shared movements right here, all this physical language forged in years of missions together that many of which we don't even know about or have not seen. It doesn't matter. Thanos takes them all out. But Thor has learned something about himself, or maybe more accurately, relearned something he used to know. He doesn't want to rule. He doesn't want to be the king. He's just not cut out for that. He leaves New Asgard to Valkyrie. It's time for me to be who I am rather than who I'm supposed to be, he says, channeling Frigga's words. He heads to Benatar with Quail. Come, Quail. And with newfound purpose and a new branding idea. The Asgardians of the galaxy back together again. Where to first? I'm not saying that Valkyrie shouldn't rule. I think it's a good choice. I'm thinking, shouldn't we cast the net a little wider? I'm like, if in my head canon Heimdall did get the job because because uh, he's he was Thor's best friend, then let's just like look around a little bit. I think Valkyrie would probably be the first to say, "I'm not, I'm not Thor's best friend." <laughs> that guy did a lot of things I didn't agree with. Yeah, you know, hold, hold a mood. Why not? Let's go full Iron Islands here and have a moot. That's never gone poorly before. I think Valkyrie will rule with a plume. I'm excited for Valkyrie's rule. And uh, I'm very excited for, for, for the Asgardians of the Galaxy and Thor's adventures with that whole crew. I think we agree on this. And I, I will say that one of the parts of the rewatch for Binge that I have enjoyed the most is really, really zeroing in on Thor's arc. Because it's, it's one of the most interesting and rewarding in the whole MCU. Yes. And the 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 tragedy on display for Thor in Infinity War and Endgame, particularly on the heels of the absolute hilarity and jubilation of Ragnarok, even though there is obviously tragedy in, in Ragnarok too. Yeah. You know, we we we've talked a lot about the idea of the heroes also being human beings and how essential that is really to being able to latch onto them, relate to them, see yourself in Mm -hmm. them. And so Thor is in many ways one of the characters who is able to cast that lens in front of our MCU experience the most wholly and effectively. Just as he says to Frigga, right? He's not supposed to be like everybody else. And so the moments when he is, they, they just land with the weight of Mjolnir. Should we talk about Hulk for a minute? Let's talk about Prof Hulk. Smart Hulk. Smart Hulk, if you must. We're going we're gonna to keep calling him Professor Professor Hulk. Welcome to the MCU, Professor Hulk. Five years after wearing Veronica, Tony's Hulkbuster armor, because Banner couldn't get Hulk to come out and play after his protracted exile on Sakaar, Bruce has finally embraced and accepted the two parts, the duality of his existence, Banner and Hulk, man and beast, control and the threat of losing control. For years, I've been treating the Hulk like he's some kind of disease, he tells Nat, Steve, and Scott over breakfast. And what a breakfast it is. Something to get rid of. But then I started looking at him as the cure. 18 months in the gamma lab, I put the brains <laughs> of the broad together. And now look at me, best of both worlds. I absolutely love the way you say gamma lab when you're doing your Professor Hulk impression. Fucking fabulous. <laughs> Where does he get the cardigan? <laughs> like, who I is know. making Hulk stuff? <laughs> I know. I mean, if we're going to adhere to the logic, the old <laughs> comics logic of he's friends with Reed Richards and that's why his pants expand, yeah, then, you I, know. Yeah. 
Maybe this is how the Fantastic Four will actually enter the MCU. (laughs) Shopping with Professor Hulk. (laughs) Yeah, Reed Richards started as like an Etsy, uh, with an Etsy store (laughs) making like unstable molecule knitwear for for different heroes. It is a great cardigan. I have to say, he looks, it's it's a great fit on Prof Hulk. Looking good. The selfie sequence with the admiring kids plays humorously because they don't want a photo with Scott. They don't Ant-Man. They don't know Ant-Man. Nobody does. And it's very amusing. But, you know, as is is Hulk uh, still apparently dabbing in 2023. It doesn't seem like 2023 Hulk is, is current on the meme of the moment. But it's actually an amazing sequence in terms of what it shows us about Hulk's arc. This is a person who fled to Brazil and later to Calcutta to avoid detection, who left Sokovia in a Quinjet, exiling himself because he was so afraid of what he might do around other people. After the Hulkbuster battle with Tony in Africa, who deprived himself of a life with Betty, didn't think that he deserved a life with Nat because he didn't think that he was allowed to be happy, didn't think that he could allow himself to just be around other people, to exist as part of the fabric of society. It's not you I don't trust, he told Nat back in Age of Ultron. Now he's sitting in diners, wearing those cardigans you just mentioned, telling children to listen to their moms. His rage is something that he can contain and decide when to deploy. He has sacrificed the part of his life that meant seeking to live his banner, free of Hulk, by accepting that Hulk is a part of him. And that suppressing that or trying to only made it harder, not only to manage that, but to just live, to live every day. Smart Hulk may be out of his depths with time travel proudly proclaiming, I see this as an absolute win. (laughs) What? After turning Scott into a, you know, into various stages of his life cycle, it's a baby. Hulk. It's Scott as a baby. He'll grow, which is a why. What? I can't believe he actually. That's it, iconic that, moment. That's hold on a second. That's your take. He'll grow. He'll <laughs> <laughs> grow. Hold on that's a second. Best. I got to say. <laughs> Brutal. Tough look for our guy, Hulk. <laughs> I just feel like he's lost a little bit of the scientific rigor in the time that he has been a uh, smart Hulk, Professor Hulk. Oh, crap. Uh, yeah, that's, cra- uh, that's crazy. Oh, my God. Professor Hulk pivots quickly to absolute certainty about the rules of time travel, which we discussed in our part one of the pod in case you missed it. Someone has to say with absolute conviction that they can't go back and kill baby Thanos, which... <laughs> The way <laughs> Rhodey miming the way that they'll strangle baby Thanos is really something. It, it absolutely kills me every single time. And then Banner being like, first of all, that's horrific. And then Rhodey being like, it's Thanos. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? That's great. Absolutely great. Time doesn't work that way. Changing the past doesn't change the future. And then Rhodey saying what, you know, naming Every time travel movie that we've that you can think of that you can remember time after time, Hulk, uh, hot tub time machine, back to the future, Terminator, quantum leap, and then Hulk's and then Hulk says, Think about it. If you travel to the past, the past becomes your future, and your former present becomes the past, 
which can't now be changed by your new future. Scott, so Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit. It's really amazing how much of the movie rests on the shoulders of that line from Hulk and the one that we'll talk about now between Hulk and the ancient one. For Hulk, the trip back to New York is an exercise in contradictions. I think it's gratuitous, but whatever. He says after Cap instructs him to smash a few things along the way to blend in and he peels off his shirt. He's totally in command now. Revisiting the day of his iconic, that's my secret, Cap, I'm always angry, breakthrough in the Battle of New York. One of the laments about the first three phases of the MCU is that we actually just don't get enough Hulk due to the rights issues that inhibited additional standalone films, as we talked about before. But even in these bursts in the team-ups and in other movies, Banner's arc has been centered around the idea of control and sacrifice alike. Because for him, until his smart Hulk breakthrough, being either Banner or Hulk meant sacrificing the other, meant sacrificing one whole part of himself. And he separates again here in his encounter with the Ancient One in a different fashion, of course, atop the Sanctum Roof where the Ancient One just completely pauses from <laughs> participating in the battle against the Chitari for a prolonged chat with Bruce. Amazing. I love the Ancient One just casually on the roof, just like killing Chitari. And when Hulk says he's looking for Doctor Strange, the Ancient One says you're about five years too early. Remember from the first Doctor Strange film how the Ancient One spoke to Steven about what the Ancient One had foreseen. I never saw your future, only its possibilities. A line like this in this conversation with Hulk reinforces that the Ancient One knew Stephen Strange would come and would have a part to play. The Ancient One is clear and decisive with Astral Dimension Bruce. The explanation, an integral part of the movie's internal logic with a helpful, helpful PowerPoint visual and all of that. The stones dictate the flow of time. Remove one stone, new timeline branches off. This may benefit your reality, but my new one, not so much. And Bruce, of course, has a solution. Return each stone to the exact moment from which it was taken and prune the new branch right back off the tree. The ancient one's concern is obvious. They have to be alive to return the stones and the stones have to be in their possession. In other words, they have to win and not win halfway or 98% of a win. They got to win all. They got to win all the way. I can't risk this reality on a promise, the ancient one says, which is absolutely fair. But what is the sell? When Bruce mentions that Dr. Strange gave up the stone willingly, the masters of the mystic arts, of course, are sworn to protect the time stone. It is their chief weapon, but also their chief responsibility, inextricable from their vow to protect this dimension from magical threats, extra dimensional villains. If Strange as Sorcerer Supreme willingly handed it over, as Banner informs the ancient one, he must mean he knew that doing so was required. We're in the end game now, Strange told Tony when explaining why he handed over the stone. After previously telling Tony, you have to understand, if it comes to saving you or the kid or the time stone, I will not hesitate to let either of you die. I can't, because the universe depends on it. The extension of the logic is that the universe depended on handing it over, which the ancient one immediately grasps, and Hulk does too. It's got to be me, he says when they're figuring out who will don the gauntlet. None of you could survive. He doesn't know that he will either, but the gamma radiation gives him some confidence. It's like I was made for this, he says, ready to sacrifice himself if he's wrong, but also with newfound clarity about what his power can do and mean. The rules, no changes from the last five years. Just bring back everyone Thanos snapped away. 
He tried, he tells Steve, to bring back Nat, but he couldn't. He's master himself, but there are still things that Bruce Banner can't control. Would you, wouldn't you just like also give yourself like 50 million extra dollars just by accident? <laughs> Hulk snapped and brought everyone back. Pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, he, does he need 50 million? He's got his heaping pile of eggs, his cardigans. He seems content. Good for him. Yeah, but you know fucking uh, Thunderbolt Ross is now coming for that ass. I, again, hurl Thunderbolt into the lake and drown him at the funeral. Let's just make it a dual funeral while we're there. Get out of here. <laughs> just the gall. Outrageous. Let's talk about Nat. After Tony returns from space, our heroes gather to assess the damage. And Nat is the one who is taking the lead to explain the state of the carnage. Governments in free fall. It's where we left her in the Captain Marvel stinger when we see Cap just staring in dismay and Nat says, I want to know who's on the other end of that thing. So much of Natasha's early arc in the MCU was defined by her chameleon-like nature, her spycraft deployed for the need of the moment. Remember what Alexander Pierce said to Nat, that moment that we love so much from Winter Soldier, she prepared to release all of the documents in that film. If you do this, Pierce said, none of your past is going to remain hidden. Are you sure you're ready for the world to see you as you really are? And Nat found the courage in the face of that question to plow ahead anyway, which not everybody would be able to do. And rather than fading into the shadows in the face of having to stare down the red on her ledger that Loki once taunted her about back in the Avengers, she becomes a more active leader, works to find comfort with the life that she wanted to live. And when Carol says she's heading off to kill Thanos, <laughs> Nat's the one who says, we usually work as a team here, which is such a great little moment that Natasha is, is the one who, who hits pause and says, let's all find a way to come together and not just act unilaterally, not just go off on our own missions. And uh, between you and I, she says to Carol, morale's a little fragile. She is working to keep them together, to keep them focused, to keep them aimed at the goal. Even if there's a small chance we can undo this, she tells everyone after Nebula with rockets, energy tracking aid reveals Thanos' location. I mean, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try. Five years later, Nat is still trying, even though it's gotten so difficult to do so. Still holding meetings with the remaining heroes, still looking for clues, still watching for threats. Carol, with a new haircut, is leading Rocket to garbage trucks. Okoye is telling Nat not to worry or th think about trying to plan out a response to natural disasters, ocean tremors, because, of course, Namor is in the MCU either, so we don't know, you know, how. what would they even do? Carol says, the things that are happening on Earth are happening everywhere on thousands of planets. And it's helpful perspective for us and the characters alike, a reminder that something that feels so personal is a sweeping shared universal despair. It comes through me. Nat says when she dismisses them, she's despondent, but determined to try and lead. That same mix of emotion greets Rhodey's report on Clint. It's not all fresh water and new pods of whales, as Steve shares when he shows up at the HQ. If I move on, who does this? She asks Steve who replies in genuinely surprising fashion. Maybe it doesn't need to be done. 
But the work has given Nat purpose and meaning and a sense of self. I used to have nothing, she tells him. And then I got this, this job, this family, and I was better because of it. It's important to her to try to give that structure, that support back to Clint too, despite the depths of his newfound depravity. He believed in her in the moments when she didn't think she deserved it. She can give him that here too. When Nat and Clint set off for Vormir, unaware of the need for a sacrifice, despite Nebula's a dominion of death at the very center of celestial <laughs> existence, it's where Thanos murdered my sister warning. I'm still hung up on this. How don't we talk through a little more what must must be required on Vormir, given what has unfolded I, there. Again, I just, I, let me just say this. Nebula, one, keeps mum about the fact that they're heading back to a timeline in an area of space where Thanos and her earlier versions of, the earlier version of herself and her sister are still active and they're looking for the for the stones. Mm-hmm. One, doesn't mention that. Two, Very tough. doesn't mention <laughs> what she probably suspects has to happen on Vormir in order to attain the soul stone. Not a great look from Nebula right here. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Shares that it's a dominion of death shares that Gamora died, but does not share the clear piecing together yeah, that's the like, logic. So one of you is going to have to die too. What is this like, a, a, you know, two uh, roads diverged in a snowy wood? Like, don't make me analyze this. Just tell me what is going to happen there. <laughs> Nebula, always been the MCU's Robert Frost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And I... Uh, I took the Benatar, less traveled by. The sequence between Nat and Clint on Vormir is quite affecting, not only because, of course, we lose Nat, but because Nat and Clint bear their souls so fully for each other on the way to the jump. Natasha's death sparked some backlash. As fans who were upset the filmmakers killed the lone woman in the original Avengers and one of the few central female characters in the MCU, a loss exacerbated by how long it took to get a Black Widow uh, movie out there, which will now come after her death, which absolutely sucks. It just sucks more and more. And by how long it took for the MCU more broadly to center films on women in the universe. Nat's death also sparked charges of fridging. Fridging is a comics criticism term coined by the creator Gail Simone about a situation in which a female character's death is played purely as motivation for the male superheroes. Though Nat is a primary character and though her own free will led her to choose to give up her life to save Clint and the rest of the Avengers and restore the Vanish, the parallel rose for some fans heightened when, in place of a funeral, Nat's death led to a scene in which Clint, Hulk, Thor, Tony, and Steve stood lakeside talking about their reinforced motivations in the wake of her death, saying they have to make it worth it, asking if she had a family. Yes, Steve says, us. For their part, the Russos framed Nat's death as a choice that she made to sacrifice herself for the people she'd want to save. As Joe Russo told EW's Anthony Bresnikan, the first thing we're going to do is try to protect everybody. And then when you realize it can't work that way, then true heroes step up and are willing to sacrifice for the greater good. It it does really, really, really suck to lose Nat and to lose her in this way at this time in the film before... The final battle when there is no time to stop and mourn and reflect. Everything has to keep going. You know, I will I will say personally that I felt both of those things at once. I felt, oh man, it is a huge bummer to me that they chose to kill the only woman in the original Avengers. I 
also was genuinely moved by the sequence between Nat and Clint on Vormir and by Nat's choice, by her sacrifice and choosing to sacrifice herself in order to save her best friend, in order to save the Avengers, in order to save all of the the life and, and, and ensure that they could attempt to bring back the people they'd lost. That feels true to Nat's arc, that she would want to be able to do that. And the bond that Nat and Clint share has been all of our, I think, well-founded uh, jokes about their air, relationship air quote, aside. Air quotes bond. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they're, they're, they, have, they have very deep feelings for each other yes. that, let's be frank, probably at different times in their uh, shared careers and lives together crossed over into, uh, into cheating territory. I mean, come on. They're certainly, emo- they've emotionally cheated at the very least. Come on. But even so, their, their relationship has been one of the cornerstones of the MCU. It, it's, it's beautiful. It's so painful to see these two people who have lost and shared so much and so often felt unworthy of the acceptance and the good that other people, including each other, saw in them grapple with their own shame and with that cliff's edge in front of them and what it represents in this sequence. They're both ready to make that choice. They're both ready to do something, to do anything necessary to save the other person. Whatever it takes, they say to each other and they hold hands. I'm starting to think we mean different people here, Natasha Glenn says. You know what I've done, he tells her. You know what I've become. I mean, they're... (laughs) Yeah, like, come yeah, on. Like, and, we Clint's, do know what you've done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The murder sprees, we do know. Clint started this movie just going on a full murder spree. Let me ask you this, Clint. Did you only kill guilty people? You didn't make one mistake in the long and international murder spree that you committed? <sighs> a lot of globe trotting, a lot of a lot of serial killing from Clint Barton. For Clint and Nat. Their arcs have, uh, in a sense, and this is a pattern across the MCU with these character pairings, worked and moved in opposite directions. Clint was the company guy who lost his way. Nat was the spy who shed that cloak and tried to become a part of the team, a part of that tapestry. I don't judge people on their worst mistakes, she says. And when he tells her that maybe she should, she replies, you didn't. They have both helped to bring the other person back. A true friendship, judgment-free. And Clint presses his head into hers and tells her that she won, but it's a ruse. And when he tries to knock her down and, and, and make the jump and run, she bests him, she beats him. And it's not that Nat doesn't want to keep going. She tells Clint this. She wants to stay here. It's that she wants more than anything to ensure that the people she cares about can, whatever it takes. What about our good friend Clint Barton, the Ted Kaczynski of the MCU in this film? (laughs) Not being in Infinity War was a tough beat for Clint Barton, who, like Scott Lang, was sidelined for that movie while on house arrest following the events of Captain America Civil War. Also, just like, let's just take a moment to appreciate that Avengers 1, mind controlled. Ultron has some legitimately great moments in Ultron. Sidelined for Infinity War under house arrest. And now in this movie, full on serial killer. <laughs> it's not a fucking... One of the six original Avengers, ladies and gentlemen. What a wild road for Clint Barton. 
Endgame opens with Clint. Bit of a shock at first, but a really brilliant choice. A way to instantly achieve many things. First, a clear signal that this film will largely center on the original adventures. And second, a way to instantly port us back to the moment of the snap, but from a different perspective. It sets the tone so fully and effectively that it's hard to imagine the movie starting another way. But amazingly, it wasn't always supposed to be that way. In fact, as the filmmakers discuss in the movie's audio commentary track, this scene was actually supposed to be in Infinity War. As the opening of Endgame, it reminds us right away of the horror that swept over us when Thanos snapped. And it amplifies that by showing us what this felt like for people who weren't standing against a man titan in one of the theaters of war. Not that we hadn't seen that before. We glimpsed the chaos on the streets as Nick Fury and Maria Hill vanish and Clint Barton is Hawkeye, an original Avenger, not exactly just Joe anybody. Still, he's home. He's in his yard. What a beautiful yard out there in Missouri it is. He's back with his family that he's uh, tried so hard to keep insulated from the things that he's done. Laura is making hot dogs. Cooper and Nathaniel Pietro are playing catch. Clint is practicing archery with his daughter, who he calls Hawkeye. It's such a tender snapshot of familial life. Nothing grand, nothing extreme, just the time together that Clint craved when he set out to retire. In the first place, the retirement he left behind to help his friends in Civil War. The second that that smile hits your face watching this, seeing Clint this way again, though, your stomach turns to knots. As McFeely says on the audio commentary, quote, the entire audience is ahead of the character and filled with dread. And that is so true. That dread is fierce and it is heavy. You see where you're going? Clint asks his daughter, Lila. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's worry about how you get there. Now, he may be talking about the path of the arrow in that moment, but that line is really one of the mission statements for the film and in many ways, the Infinity Saga. One more reminder of the monumental task and even more monumental achievement of satisfyingly tying together a decade of storytelling. Clint has never been the most central figure in the tale, but his role has always been essential, the, the mortal among the enhanced, just trying to do his part. Recall the exchange he had with Lara's wife in Age of Ultron. You know, I totally support your avenging. I couldn't be prouder, but I see those guys, those gods. You think they don't need me? I think they do, which is a lot scarier. And... The part of his character that helps him round out the Avengers that imbues that just a regular guy energy into the most high stakes encounters is also the part that tears your heart to shreds when he looks around and no longer sees his family. Not that it doesn't hurt for the highly superpowered heroes who lost people too. Of course it does. But seeing Clint's entire family blip away cements what that must have been like for everybody else, for all of the other people across the world who were just home in their yard or wherever they may have been. And looked around and saw somebody who they cared about gone. In the time it took Lila to walk to her arrow, she vanished. And then in the time it took Clint to turn around, Laura, Cooper, and Nate had vanished too. And the the speed at which the confusion on his face turns to fear and then anguish as he's running around his own yard and whistling and calling out, the, the, the entire fabric of his existence just gone. In a moment, he is alive, he survived, but in the time it took Thanos to snap his fingers, his entire life was gone. And then to serial killing with Clint, to uh, murder sprees, to vigilante justice, Clint now Ronan seeking to extinguish the lives of those through some process he has deemed unworthy of surviving the snap. What is that process? 
how high an evidentiary bar is it before uh, Clint just decides I'm going to kill everybody? How involved do they have to be in the criminal scheme to be marked for death? Unclear. (laughs) Absolutely unclear. Yeah. Yeah. What the rules of this are. I got to tell you, Rhodey tells Nat updating her on Clint's string of murders across the globe. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to find him. It's reminiscent of the moment in Winter Soldier when Sam told Steve of Bucky, the guy he is now, I don't think he's the kind you save. He's the kind you stop. But Steve couldn't believe that of Bucky, just as Nat couldn't believe it of Clint, even as he stands in the rain, slicked with blood, having just cut a guy's throat in the middle of the fucking street. (laughs) Justifying his crimes with his own version of Thanos logic, Uh, you know, you survived, he tells Akihiko. Half the planet didn't, they got Thanos, you get me. Clint sees it as a cosmic failing and injustice of the highest order, that the good people like his wife and children should vanish while criminals like the Yakuza remain. What I want, he tells Akihiko as he kills him, you can't give me. But the truth is, Clint can't be the one giving the world what he's seeking to give either. Clint needed a many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Speech from Gandalf, and Gandalf is in Tokyo, but Nat is just watching him kill. You shouldn't be there. (laughs) Until he picks up her scent on the rain. Yeah. (laughs) Killing all these people isn't going to bring your family back, she tells him. But his response to hearing her say they may have found a way to do exactly that is not to tuck away his murder blades and run to the nearest Quinjet. It's to say, don't. Don't what? Don't give me hope. This is a sad moment. Clint has just lost his family. He's lost the ability to believe that anything can improve, that there can be a better tomorrow. Allowing himself to think that for even a moment means letting go of this singular, albeit foul, purpose currently driving him. It only primes him, he thinks, to open himself up to more disappointment and pain. But part of the friendship, part of the teamwork, part of family is giving that hope to each other. As Nat tells him in reply, taking his hand, I'm sorry I couldn't give it to you sooner. It's weird to think, okay... Nat decides that because she doesn't have a family, she should be the one, which I get. Clint should be there to raise his kids. And then to think about Clint going back to raise his kids, having murdered 300 people or whatever, like, daddy is a a international mass murderer now. That's your dad now. Yeah, tough, tough chat with Lila Cooper and and little Nathaniel named for Nat and Pietro after that. Okay, so on that point, you know, we, uh, let's, can we actually talk about that for a minute? I think it's a read that a lot of fans have, right? The, the 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 role that family plays here and why Nat wants to make sure that Clint survives. While Nat does say, tell them yourself after Clint says, tell my family I love them, she doesn't actually explicitly state that as her reason. It's it's certainly something that a lot of viewers infer as part of the thought process. And I I don't like that idea. I think that if that is actually, like, yes, Clint has a family and it's nice that he gets to be with them. And it's tragic to see that their, their vanishing has sent him into this absolute spiral of horror. But Natasha is no less worthy and deserving of continuing to live because she doesn't have a family. And I think that is part of what makes it very upsetting. (laughs) 
I would also say part of what makes it very upsetting is one person in this movie went on a serial killing spree and one person didn't. That's correct. <laughs> and the, the person just... who went on the serial killing on the serial killing spree lived. Nat, reading emails from a raccoon, making peanut butter sandwiches, trying to keep the team together, working toward trying a better to stabilize future. The world. Nat deserved to live. Well, Clint is like, uh, you know, throwing his katanas into baggage and like hopping off the plane and just stabbing dozens of people to death. Part of the, you know, the theme today is sacrifice. And part of the point of the evolution for all of the characters from Infinity War to Endgame is that shift from we don't trade lives to I'm willing to give up my own life if it helps us achieve our end collectively. And I can be the one who are part of part of the group that helps protect the people I care about. I, I respect Nat's choice. I think it's a, a good thing that Nat ultimately acted from a position of agency and free will. Got to make that choice. Her sacrifice was deliberate. I just wish that Nat were still here. I really do. Clint, I could, I could take her leave. <laughs> I, here's the th- I'm going to make a prediction. I've made, I, I, and I've been wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong again in the future, but I'm hopeful that this is true. I feel like if ScarJo wanted to come back, if she was open to coming back, but I don't know, by the way, that uh, the decision to kill her was in any way driven by her desire not to be in the movies anymore. It's not it that has not been indicated by anything. But I'm saying, like, if she wants to come back in and there is desire in the fan base to see that happen and there's more stories to tell. And all of those, by the way, I check those boxes. Clearly, I think the fan base would love to see Natasha again. And I think there are many, many stories to tell. I think there's, you know, I think you figure out a way to do it. Well, I mean, and technically that's happening, right? Because we're getting a Black Widow movie. Yeah, but it's from the past. You know, I know, like, but it just in terms of the point of ScarJo continuing to be in the MCU and still getting ScarJo in movies. But yes, I agree with you that the fact that that's happening after the character has been killed is, is definitely a huge bummer. It's, it's suboptimal. Back in Avengers HQ, Clint volunteers for the first test run not because he believes yet in what they're doing that it will work, but because he feels like he has nothing to lose and because he knows deep down that he needs something to reignite that ability to believe. Seeing his home and hearing his family does that. By the time he and Nat are en route to Vormir, Clint's smiling again. We're a long way from Budapest, he says, calling back once again to their formative shared mission there. The one that they spoke of in the Avengers when standing shoulder to shoulder, fighting a new threat, finding a new way forward together. As we've talked about before, Nat and Clint have a a long, deep history together, and their bond was in many respects amplified by their role in the Avengers because, as we talked about in the Avengers pod, highly skilled, highly capable as they are, human beings among gods or people who, who may as well be gods. And it's one more thing that united them. And so seeing the way that they smile at each other when they're on the Benatar, just the two of them flying through space, is really quite a special thing, though it is, of course hard to smile for long knowing where it is leading them. Clint holds the stone in his hand after Nat's sacrifice, apparently. Humans can, This bothered me all throughout the movie. Same. That yeah. Humans can just, like, hold them now. What actually constitutes also holding them? Like, Steve holding the briefcase with the stones in him, is that not holding them? I guess that is, like, a protective case, but Clint sure. just holding the soul stone is... Bare hand when Ego literally said to Quill, 
I was able to find you because I heard that a human held an infinity stone, which is impossible. That's a tough one. A big part of Guardians 1 was uh, you can't hold these. And like <laughs> Celestials have tried. Maybe it's just different rules for the, the Power Stone and the Soul Stone, but even so. It could be that. It could be that the Soul Stone is like once you have uh, made the sacrifice, you can hold it kind of thing. That, that, that might work. After Bruce snaps, Clint is the first to realize it worked. Birds are chirping outside, birds that were not there before. All his gut bacteria is back. Uh, it feels like he can digest again. And then his phone rings, and it's his wife. She's back. It's the strength he needs to pick up the gauntlet and run, even after the encounter with two nebulas when T'Challa calls for it. He uses Clint's name, despite saying he didn't care in Civil War. Great stuff here. So many amazing little moments like that. And when Thanos bears down on T'Challa, Wanda steps in. And make no mistake, she is absolutely about to wash Thanos here. This is who took vision from her, and her rage is it just terrifying to behold. You took everything from me. I don't even know who you are, bro. <laughs> you will. Wanda is who Clint shares a moment with at Tony's funeral after reuniting with his family. They both lost people, of course. Nat and Vision. The snap did not and could not return. I wish there was a way I could let her know that we won, Clint says. Wanda's reply, she knows. They both do. Which is a little spooky considering where we are in WandaVision now. I know. That it statement. really is. Nat and Clint Bond, beautiful again. I wish Clint Barton all the luck in the world explaining this to his wife. <laughs> As we discussed last pod. Very quickly, let's talk about Scott Lang for a minute. Scott, like Clint, not in Infinity War because he had the house arrest sentence to serve and a movie of his own to make. And even though the bulk of Endgame centers on concluding the Infinity Saga by saying farewell to the original Avengers who comprise so much of the first three phases, sometimes you need what Tony calls Carol, fresh blood. Someone who met Captain America in Civil War and said, thanks for thanking of me. Uh, by the way, Apparently, I've been saying this line wrong for the entire binge mode run. And it's thanks for thanking of me, <laughs> not thanks for thinking of me. Thank yes. you to the person who pointed this out on Twitter. <laughs> Someone who only returns from the quantum realm. Inside of Storage Crate 616, Jay. Great shit. Love the little 616 there. At you store it because a literal rat walked across an activation button. And we can only say once again, Pet Avengers Assemble. Honestly, without the <laughs> rat, we're finished. The whole universe is still devastated, if not for this rat, this heroic Give rat. Give the rat a spinoff. Why not? Why not? We typically look to Scott Lang for laughs, and he certainly brings them in this movie. The rat activation return is no exception. But Scott's walk home through the dilapidated San Francisco is is anything but humorous. This is, uh, of course, incomprehensible to him because as we'll learn when he finds Nat and Steve at HQ, what passed as five years for everyone else was for Scott in the quantum realm, five hours. But he doesn't need to understand the specifics of what unfolded to see that something is horribly wrong. Neighborhoods are in disrepair. Scott then stumbles upon the memorial of the vanished and the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge plaque after plaque filled with the names of the missing, his own included. What a totally destabilizing thing to see. But Scott's thoughts aren't for himself, they're for his family. He searched in horror for their names. And after seeing his own, he realized they had spent these years mourning him, thinking him dead. 
It is devastating that Cassie and Scott, who shared such a special bond, were again robbed of years together. Cassie thought she lost her dad, and Scott didn't get to see his little peanut grow up. It's also so heartening to see their reunion and the rekindling of belief. It's a snapshot of what Scott knows he can give to other people if he finds a way to bring back the vanished. To New York, he still sends a surge of hope through their hearts. This is new. This is a possibility. This is hopeful. He tells them of the quantum realm and the way he experienced time down there, whereas we learned from Jan and Ant-Man and the Wasp, time and space work very differently. If they had a way to navigate the chaos in the quantum realm, he tells them maybe they could go back to before Thanos. Uh, absolutely love the, wait, are you talking about a time machine? No, of course. Uh, yeah, 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 time machine. Remember what Darren Cross said to Scott and Ant-Man mockingly? Did you think you could stop the future with a heist? Well, Darren, thank you for asking. We have an update for you. In fact, Scott Lang does think exactly that. And now you want to pull a, what do you call it? Tony asks him a timeline, Scott says proudly. And if you think he's proud, then check him out when Cap wishes him luck and tells him he's got it right after Hulk helpfully says to Nat, we're talking about time travel here. Either it's all a joke or none of it is. You're right, Scott says. I do, Captain America. <laughs> They're enacting Scott's plan to save half of life, to restore half of life. And he just still can't believe he's hanging out with Cap. It's such a nice orienting bit of charm for viewers amid all of the change and carnage, as is the taco scene. Nebula saying, there's an idiot in the landing zone to Rhodey. That was mean. What was that about? She's, I gotta tell you, Nebula really featured in this movie. Love paper football. Some real down moments for Nebula. Uh, Scott at least is smart enough to warn everyone about the limited supply of Pym particles post-Hank vanishing of the snap, though still manages to blow one of the two test run doses on a botch and never suggests, nor does Tony or anyone else, attempting to recreate the formula. Give it a try at least, that's all I say. Or using one of the doses that they have to go back to an earlier time frame to get more particles first. Now, you know, we love the Tony Cap sequence at Camp Lehigh. We'll, we'll allow it. We don't have anything to compromise that. I, I, I just get very hung up on not attempting to increase the PIM supply before enacting the timeline. Very hung up. Scott, <laughs> Scott is at once an integral elemental part of the time heist. And a bit of an interloper, and that's that's fitting. But the filmmakers definitely navigate that balancing act as well. You know, he's with Tony and Cap for the Scepter and Tesseract retrievals. But when they lose the Tesseract and have to figure out how to find it again without any pimps to spare, Scott is off to the side. That has to be a Tony-Cap affair exclusively with Scott left gawking on his own in the wreckage-strewn streets of New York. Damage control, not yet there to clean up. <laughs> When Hulk snaps and Scott looks out at the newly chirping birds, Scott has such pride on his face. He knows that they have accomplished their mission, but there's no time to celebrate. He has to save Hulk and Rhodey and Rocket from drowning after the building collapses. I'm coming! Everyone gets their moment. and Scott gets more than one. The dope, absolutely incredible Leviathan punch, him bursting out of the wreckage in general, him stepping on one of uh, Thanos's lieutenants <laughs> to foster the Stark Peter Parker reunion just great stuff here. Lewis's van plays a brief starring role in the battle and an important role which is a fantastic weaving of threads again. Hope not only returning but yelling cap 
Love that. Juice boxes and string cheese and fireworks. Wonderful movie for Scott. It really is. It's such a good moment for him when Hope calls Cap Cap. You know, he feels such vindication there. <laughs> Very quickly. Nebula. Rhodey with Nebula. Gamora. Thanos. We've obviously talked about these characters a lot along the way, but a little snapshot of their journey here. It was fun. That's how Nebula replies to Tony aboard the Benatar after she wins the game of paper football. And she looks shocked when Tony announces her victory, stunned in a way that only someone who's lived a life defined by a loss and the consequences of that defeat really could be. Recall what Nebula said to Gamora in Guardians 2, reflecting on the torment of their childhood. You were the one who wanted to win, and I just wanted a sister. Now, they broke through that together, but that very sensation of victory and achievement and an opponent who recognized and celebrated that is so new to Nebula that it it casts a look of shock upon her face. She didn't just pass the time with Tony. She cared for him, treating his stab wound, helping him to try to fix the Benatar. She puts him in his seat after he falls asleep on the floor, fading away. And he calls her Blue Meanie in his his message to Pep, but there's actually like real tenderness on display as she looks, looks at Tony watching him Uh, just fade and recede away, knowing that he's about to die and that she is about to be alone again. And one of the most quietly touching moments comes after the return to Earth when Carol's rescued them, when Rocket joins Nebula on the steps of the Benatar and the two one-time foes just sit in silence together, holding hands, this really gentle little recognition that for our heroes more unites them than divides them if they can just bring themselves to see it that way. Nebula, of course, has a history with Thanos that no one else who's fighting to stop him does. Despite their battle against him, despite what he cost them, she has a decades-long past to call upon. It's a source of misery to her, as she expressed in Guardians 2, when she swore to hunt him and hurt him. Until he knows some semblance of the profound and unceasing pain I know every single day. It's also a source of insight she knows about his garden, his post-snap intentions, his stage mission, Infinity War, to finally rest and watch the sun rise on a grateful universe. That's cute, Rudy says. Thanos has a retirement plan. The waterfalls cascade over the green mountainsides. His armor stands like Jim Starlin's scarecrow outlined against the moon hanging heavy in the sky. The 2014 Thanos who travels to 2023 during the time heist is not as steadfast and righteous as 2018 Thanos was, as he tells our heroes. He does find it personal, will enjoy watching them die. For Infinity War Thanos, it wasn't necessarily about that. Remember, he let Tony live despite knowing what a threat he was because he made a bargain with Doctor Strange for the Time Stone. He lived by the balance he pursued. The work is done. Thanos tells them as they look on in shock and disbelief, Rhodey literally refusing to accept it, saying Thanos must be lying about the stones. It always will be. And then his trademark line, I am inevitable. When Thanos returns to the story via the 2014 timeline, it feels on the the shock of his early death. We talked about that in in part one, how stunning that is, 19 minutes into a three-hour movie. It starts to feel like he actually might be inevitable when he comes back in this other form, really might be inescapable. But by then, we have a new unexpected lifeline to hold on to, the bonds that Nebula, of all characters, has formed with the Avengers. Little things to reinforce this. She calls James Rhodes Rhodey during the taco scene. And it's clear they've been off on missions together, rallying the team. When they land on Morag in 2014, Rhodey calls her Blue. They're using nicknames with each other. It's kind of amazing. Rhodey seems 
confused and alarmed when Nebula mentions that they need to take cover because they're not the only ones in 2014 looking for the stones. And on the one hand, for Rhodey, it's like, uh, keep up. Of course, Thanos is looking for the stones, right? He has them all in 2018. That's how he snapped in the first place. It's not like he was going to start in Q1 of 2018. But on the other hand, as mentioned, Nebula... We know the teamwork thing is new to you, but you have got to share more details during the hours and hours and hours of Ben and Jerry's aided prep. Have to. Have to mention this at HQ. Seeing 2014 Nebula, real kick in the gut here, but it is, of course, a 2014 Gamora thrill for us. Gamora's back in a different fashion, but back. And she and Nebula at that time have not yet pushed through their shared trauma to find common ground. They're on edge. They're still rivals there. But we lost Gamora in Infinity War, really lost her. Like Nat, after the Clint-Nat-Vormir sequence, that's not one of the deaths that the Avengers can undo, just like Vision in Wakanda, despite how hard Hulk tried. Having Gamora from an earlier timeline re-enter the story, though, it, it doesn't cheapen her original death, especially because, as we see here over the course of the film, she is a different Gamora. It's unnatural for her. She sees Quill. We it's a, it's it's something we we laugh at. You know this guy really, but she is lost and without bearings in what other people are telling her is her own eventual life. That's the kind of gateway to rediscovering bonds and roles and story in a in a different way, a degree to the left here that comic stories can give to the readers or the viewers who have grown so attached to these characters. But of course, with 2014 Nebula and Gamora already expressing dismay over the prospect of Thanos finding the stones, priming their turns away from their father, comes Thanos himself. He's clad in his full armor again, not having reached the point in his timeline where he's begun to acquire the stones, build his power, and shed the layers of protection he no longer needs. Unfortunately, there's no reversing Nebula's lack of airplane mode and her neural link across timelines. Terrans, Gamora says, seeing their image. Avengers, unruly wretches. It's really fun to see him talk about them this way, to know how it must have grated on him to be defeated by them before him being beat by them again in 2023. Just as it's a delight to see Nebula and Rhodey watching Quill singing Come and Get Your Love into an Orloni. What a journey it's been. So he's an idiot? Yeah. <laughs> Tough movie for Quill. Nebula just hand waves Rhodey's booby trap concerns with really hilarious dismissal. But then they share a, a poignant exchange. I wasn't always like this, she tells Rhodey, blowing out the flames on her own smoldering metal arm after reaching right in to grab the orb. Me either, he tells her. Yet another plane of shared understanding. But we work with what we got, right? Unfortunately for them, that, that shared plane of understanding doesn't continue into the quantum realm because when they go to sync up, Rhodey departs his plan and Nebula's neural link to other Nebula blocks her exit. And instead of leaving Morag, Thanos, Gamora, and Ebony Maw, that fucker Ebony Maw, are able to watch the exchange on the garden in 2018. Thanos knows that Nebula will eventually betray him, but he knows too that he found the stones, that he did it. I found them all, he says. I won, tipped the cosmic scales to balance. This is your future, Ma says. And Thanos replies, it's my destiny, which makes the next shot of Thor chopping off his head, I mean, watching your own death like that, a potentially tough pill to swallow, but not for Thanos. He is not a common foe. He views it as his endgame 
achieved. He'd be more than willing to sacrifice his life if doing so came at the end of seeing his vision enacted. That, he says, watching his own murder is destiny fulfilled. Thanos, weird guy. 2014 Nebula is desperate to prove that she will not betray her father as her future self does. 2023, Nebula realizes what the sink means and she tries desperately to reach Clinton at to warn them of what's coming. But before she can reach them, she's beamed up into Thanos' ship. You're weak. 2014, Nebula says, hitting herself. I'm you, 2023, Nebula answers. And then our Nebula gets to see Gamora again, the sister she finally forgave and then lost. She tries to reach her but can't before 2014 Nebula opens the gateway for Thanos into the present timeline and blasts the Avengers HQ to bits. They suspected nothing, 2014 Nebula tells Thanos, who replies in pitch-perfect, ironic, arrogant fashion as he inches closer to his own demise. The arrogant never do. Fucking Thanos, the embodiment of hubris. We, of course, suspect that 2014 Gamora and our Nebula will have a breakthrough, and they do. And they need to because Thanos has lost the only redeeming quality that main timeline Thanos has, which was, as he was happy to tell you, his impartiality. I will shred this universe down to its last atom, he tells Tony, Thor, and Cap as they unite and refuse to stand down. Born out of blood, Cap says. They'll never know it, Thanos replies, because you won't be alive to tell them. That's like a harrowing moment. Our heroes united against this menace prevent such an outcome, prevent such a horror. But for Nebula, the blood did seep in. Our Nebula had to kill the 2014 version of herself in order to save Gamora. A really, there's a lot going on at that point in the movie, a lot happening very quickly, but that is a really tragic embodiment. You can change, future Nebula says. He won't let me, 2014 Nebula says. Really, really, really heartbreaking. As... Thanos calls his army down around them all. There is love mixed in with the hell. Gamora, Quill says when he sees her, I thought I lost you. Groin kick and all. The relief for Quill is as immense as it is for anyone who lost someone in the snap and then saw them return. And of course, he had snapped away too. And these are different things, but that's the point. The relief is universal, even if the circumstances are not. She is not with them, though, at the end. She's not at the funeral, and she's not on the Benatar as the Asgardians of the Galaxy set off. Where is Gamora? It remains to be seen. Because while the Infinity Saga may be over, Jay, there's so much story left to tell. Now we don't say that. Only Mommy says that word. She coined it. It belongs to her. But the Nuggets, like the rescue helmet, belong to everyone. So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film, like so many Infinity Stones. Lightning Round style. You go first. Number one. What happens when the blipped return? Well, in Far From Home, we see in the absolutely exceptional opening tribute video from Midtown's Betty and Jason that the vanished souls Hulk returned to existence when he snapped reappeared exactly where they stood when Thanos snapped them out of existence five years prior. We gain further confirmation of this pattern in WandaVision spoiler alert here, the opening scene of episode four when Monica Rambeau blipped back into the exact hospital room chair that she had vanished from half a decade prior. 
But we, listen, we're not alone. We like so many across the internet since the moment Endgame premiered have to ask, have to talk about this. Even with this newly gained intel, what does it mean for the legions who flip back into existence to potentially immediately die? What if you had been walking across the street when you turned to ash and then reappeared and there's a truck coming down that lane? What if you had been in a plane or a helicopter, which we see, of course, a plummeting helicopter in the background of the Nick Fury Maria Hill Infinity War stinger? Do you appear midair with no casing around you and then fall to your death? What if you disappeared from the exact spot that someone else is occupying? What if you're sucking dick during the snap? Thank you to the person who tweeted that incredible stuff. (laughs) Incredible stuff. (laughs) What if you're performing oral or having any kind of intimate physical relation during the snap? It's a tough one. Well, do you just have ash inside you? Oh, that's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. It really is. <laughs> it's one way to hold on to a, a piece of your of your loved oh one, God. I guess. <laughs> Kevin Feige has an answer to all Good. of that. Not the not the dick sucking one. He didn't answer that. But to all the other stuff. Yeah, Kevin. <laughs> Mr. Feige, <laughs> sir, I need an answer on the issue of dick sucking during the snap. Oh, God. Do the dicks turn to dust? And is that dust in the, uh, the partner's mouth? They must turn to dust. Everything turns, turns to dust, right? Feige, in an interview with Empire's James White, Chris Hewitt, and Ben Travis said, quote, If people were in an airplane when they were dusted, they didn't return at 35,000 feet. They didn't fall to their deaths because smart Hulk is smart. And when he snapped, dot, 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 you can wish for whatever you want and you can wish for everyone to come back safely. Done. It feels like the the Wonder Woman 84 meme. Yes. (laughs) I think that's a good point by Feige. And I think one of the things that doesn't really get illustrated in the films it couldn't quite the same way it they it does in the comics is that when you take the glove not only do you become omnipotent but your mind expands to the point where you are able to actually keep track of all the people and beings that you're bringing back in in the circumstances that you are bringing them back in and that's all in a second now, him saying every single person who is airborne in a plane, I'm going to make sure you're safely on the ground. That seems like really a lot of effort, but I'm proud of him. Proud of him for seeing it through. I see this as an absolute win, putting everybody <laughs> on the ground. Cap, I tried. I tried. Everybody who was getting their dick sucked, I tried to bring them back. Number two, Hulk soul world scene. In our part two Infinity War pod, we talked about the soul world scene that was cut out of Endgame in which Tony saw his daughter Morgan grown up after he snapped. As the Russos explained on the deleted scene commentary track available to view on Disney Plus, what a f- fantastic resource Disney Plus is, they cut the scene because audience didn't connect to a version of Morgan they'd never met. And because Tony conveys similar thoughts in his helmet-delivered eulogy, but there's more. Hulk also snapped using the gauntlet. During a comicbook.com watch party for Endgame's one-year anniversary, Marcus responded to a question about who Hulk would have seen in the soul world, the pocket dimension inside the soul stone, by tweeting, quote, we did write one, a conversation between Hulk and Banner, but it didn't make it to camera. 
Ruffalo showed up, but Hulk wouldn't come out of his trailer. One more reminder while we're on the Soul Stone, as we noted in our Infinity War pod, the Russos have also confirmed that, yes, Cap would have seen his old nemesis Red Skull on Vormir returning the Soul Stone. What a weird vibe that must have been. <laughs> I really wish we had gotten to see that. Captain, is it, is it not me anymore? I am now the Keeper of the Stone. I am not the man that she once knew. Or am I? <laughs> Number three, cameos. Even by the MCU standard, Endgame is a cameo bonanza, packed. And we must, of course, start with Stan Lee, who appears in the 70s Camp Lehigh sequence, the last MCU cameo that Lee filmed before he died. He's driving a car with enough said bumper sticker, one of his comics catchphrases. He shouts, make love, not war. And he is yeah. de-aged. Part of 200 de-aging shots in Endgame, according to The Hollywood Reporter's Carolyn Giardina. <laughs> 200. Those tiny bits of de-aging they had to do for the Time Heister are fascinating to read about. That 70s sequence also features a cameo from Yvette Nicole Brown, continuing the Russo brothers' tradition of featuring community actors in their MCU flicks. Love it. And I her love that. fellow community alum, Ken Jung, is also in Endgame as the security guard who spots Scott on camera after the rat frees him in the quantum realm. He is reading J.G. Ballard's The Terminal Beach, sci-fi short story collection in which the first story is titled Endgame. Hello. Jarvis, probably could have told you that. And the human precursor to Tony's AI is in this movie with James Darcy, who plays the Stark family butler, Edwin Jarvis in Agent Carter, and here, there to drive John Slattery's Howard away. Howard Stark was not the only Howard to appear in this movie, however, and not just talking about Howard Potts either. Howard the Duck continues his MCU cameo run following Guardians and Guardians 2 with a brief endgame moment during the battle at Avengers HQ. He's right behind Hope. If you're wondering whether to draft Howard the Duck in your MCU Dynasty League, you can just ask Matthew Barry, ESPN fantasy guru, who appears as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent at Stark Tower in the 2012 New York Time Heist sequence. The talented Mr. Roto did not get to go to Tony's funeral, but Harley did. We've known yes. it since Iron Man 3, folks. They're connected. Love that. I really love seeing Harley there. It gets me every time. Few people are more connected to the comics canon that inspired Infinity War and Endgame, the comics canon that you wrote about in your Infinity War Sanctum, Jay, than Jim Starlin, Thanos' creator and the author of the Infinity Gauntlet arc that inspired so much of these movies. He appears in the same grief counseling scene with Cap as Joe Russo, which we discussed earlier. Russo's kids are also in the movie. His daughter, Ava, plays Clint Barton's daughter, Lila, while Leah Russo is one of the admirers who asks for Professor Hulk to snap a selfie over breakfast. Number four, Ronan Akihiko, the Yakuza clan leader that Clint cold-bloodedly murders in the streets of Tokyo only appears for the length of a cameo as well, but the comics history of Clint's bloodthirsty alter ego Ronan is quite a bit longer. But Clint Barton is not the only character who has assumed the alias in the pages of Marvel Comics. Others include Echo, the first Ronan, who debuted in 2005 and also battles the Yakuza, Red Guardian, Bullseye, Blade, and Mark Spector. Clint Barton's version of Ronan will be returning to the MCU in the aforementioned Disney Plus Hawkeye show was revealed at Comic-Con in 2019. But wait, Maya Lopez, a.k.a. Echo, has also been confirmed as part of the impending Hawkeye show, meaning we might get more than one Ronin and perhaps some Daredevil and Hera on this show. 
Very excited for this. I hope it's a lot like the comic, which would I guess mean that Clint becomes like a landlord in Brooklyn. <laughs> wow. That's quite a journey for him. He yes. loves the open farm life. I'm not sure Brooklyn's for him, but who knows? Number five, A-Force. For some fans, the she's got help charge in the Battle of Earth felt like pandering, a way of saying, hey, look at all these women in our movie after a decade of not nearly enough of exactly that. For other fans, it was not only a showcase of the MCU's female characters, but a long overdue promise of what a more inclusive MCU could look like in the future. And to be clear, for many people, it was both of those things at once. The moment is a nod to A-Force, the comics canon centered on an all-female Avengers team that briefly ran in 2015 and 2016. And in a 2018 interview with IGN, Tessa Thompson, whose Valkyrie is part of that charge against Thanos' horde, spoke about the prospect of a Marvel team-up featuring all women, saying, quote, I think Kevin Feige is really excited by the idea, and if you look at what's happened already in Phase 4 with me and Valkyrie in our story, and then in Black Panther, the women rule supreme. And as screener ants Anna Dumeraug observed in 2019, both Thompson and Captain Marvel's Brie Larson championed an A-Force movie at a Chicago Comic-Con event that October, with Larson saying, quote, the more people talk about it, are behind it and interested in it, the more likely it is to happen. Maybe we'll see an A-Force movie announcement soon. I love A-Force. Number six, House of M. Lastly, let's look back in order to potentially look ahead in a May 2019 interview with The Hollywood Reporter's Aaron Couch Marcus and McFeely revealed something truly scintillating for comics fans. They considered the famous House of M comics storyline for Endgame, including it on a 60-page ideas memo they crafted for Feige when plotting out Infinity War and Endgame. When Couch asked the writing duo what project could bring them back to Marvel one day, they had this exchange. McFeely, I think House of M would be awesome, but you've got to earn it. Couch, 10 years from now, McFeely, it might take a while, and it seems hard. Marcus. It doesn't really feel within Scarlet Witch's skill set. <laughs> McFeely, we took her skill set away. She had mind control stuff early. McFeely, somewhere there's a great Moon Knight movie, but it's complicated. Moon Knight, as we know, is happening at Disney Plus, and House of M may as well be, as WandaVision spoiler, the introduction of Evan Peters' Quicksilver from Fox's X-Men canon introduces many X-Men and Wanda-centric possibilities, as I discussed in our part one pod. And Wanda's broader arc aligns with much of what unfolds in that story. Elizabeth Olsen, for her part, has wanted this for some time. In a Screen Rant interview from Age of Ultron days that resurfaced in February, Olsen said House of M would be her dream Wanda storyline for the MCU. It would be awesome, but it, it would have to be like phase six, because phase four introduced the mutants. Phase five, conflict between either the mutants and Earth's like nations, Earth's security apparatus, or Earth and the Avengers. And then phase six, flip the script, House of M, mutants run everything, and mutants and the Avengers try and bring the Earth back to the way it was. It would take a while. It, it would take a while to introduce that, but it would be really cool if they did. Another decade of the MCU. I can't yeah, wait. I love it. That sounds I'll great. <laughs> If there's anything I'm sure of is that the MCU has got more than several decades left. I mean, Star Wars is still going. It's been almost, we're going to, like, we're going on 50 years at this point. We're going to be around. I, I think one of the things that has really struck me as I've been rereading a lot of stories is, like, especially with the mutant stuff basically untouched, they haven't really even scratched the surface yet. 
there are so many stories that they have not even attempted to adapt. There's a lot of stuff in there. Most of the stuff that they've adapted is from the last two decades of Marvel. And it's not even all of it. Yeah. As you would say, terribly exciting. I can't wait. It's exciting. <laughs> it is really exciting. Typically this season, we have debated the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of binge. Today. That's right. Fittingly, it's a shared victory here at the NJ. A shared victory for the Avengers. Yes. I mean, it's just what an, first of all, what an incredible and emblematic victory by them, for them, that we get the first Avengers assemble. We see the what Avengers in moment. this kind of like widescreen, massive size that, you know, only in the comics have there ever been maybe that many Avengers. There was a point in the comics in like the early 80s where there were maybe 50 people on the Avengers team. Like there were really that many people. But it, it, it's just a titanic victory and also, a, you know, a smashing triumph for the MCU as a, as a proposition going forward, as a um, fictional universe to explore on par with Star Wars and all these other IP universes that are so valuable and so entertaining to think about and talk about. Absolutely. I think that if we were going to pick just one character, we would, of course, have to say, Tony, you know, the sacrifice and everything Iron Man has represented in this decade of storytelling. But I think part of what Tony would want is to recognize what the Avengers did together. And they all had their moments. And for the six original Avengers in particular, what they achieved here, restoring mm -hmm. the half of all life that Thanos vanished, Pretty eliminating great. Thanos as a threat, helping to heal life and the planet. Tony, incredible sacrifice, a life well-lived, a death well-intentioned and served. Cap gets his dance, gets his happy ending. Thor, finding a true sense of self and understanding. Nat, sacrificing herself for her teammates, for her friends. Hulk, snapping to bring everybody back. That's five of the six original Avengers doing a lot of good. Clint, you know, our take is clear, I think, at this point. But, you know, the MCU loves a redemption. Tough arc. MCU for Clint. The original Avengers, what a journey it's been. We love them 3,000. All right, friends. Not that it's a competition, but she loves us 3,000. Steve Allman, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher. We're somewhere in the low six to 900 range. <laughs> Remember, just kidding. We love them 3002. If you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back in Quinjet a couple more times to explore the rest of this story. And then you'll join us next time for our discussion of Spider-Man Far From Home. Whatever it takes. Zola, there you are. What are you up to? Ah, uh, Howard, yes, I am just here doing research. 
on this evil device. Excuse me, I meant uh, experimental science device that I will use to kill everyone in the world. You know, I mean, excuse me, that uh, will be used to uh, to uh, uh, surveil America's enemies around the globe. Ah, yes, yeah, so, okay. You gotta calm down. Hey, you know this. Uh, you know this guy Howard Potts uh, that was just here. Uh, I just met him outside. Real nice guy. Have you ever seen him before? No, I have never seen him. I've been too busy down here in my lab, concocting ways to poison the children of America. Turns them against their parents. I mean, to uh, provide vitamins to underprivileged children in the, in the United States of America. All right, that's great. Uh, uh, or that's great, Zola. Okay, listen. Have a good weekend. What do you What do you got going on this weekend? Oh, this weekend, well, I'm going to download myself into a computer so I will have eternal life, and so I can continue the mission of Hydra. To sprout heads after heads after heads and rule the world. All right, I'll see you later. I'm gonna. I'm probably watch the Yankees, uh, <laughs> and then uh, you know, just turn in for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs>